This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Kurt Schleichter. He is a columnist for Town Hall, an author, a political commentator, an attorney, and a former Army colonel who always has great and oftentimes humorous insights into what's going on in this world. So now, without further ado, Kurt Schleichter. All right. Kurt, are you there, buddy? I'm here, man. How are you? Oh, it's a wonderful day. Oh, man. You in LA? Why aren't you, uh, are you billing this time for clients or what's, uh, what's going on? Are you at the house? Dude, I'm double billing. <laughs> That's fantastic. Are you, uh, you at home? Is that the, uh, the backdrop of home? Yeah, there? I'm out back. I have a, uh, you know, like all Californians, I live in a, uh, uh, a small shack. So, uh, <laughs> You've been there a long uh, they, time, they, though, right? They cost more than my parents made in their entire lives. It's crazy. So. It's crazy. But the price keeps going up. So if you ever decide to uh, vacate the state and uh, no, move to gone, freedom. According to Zillow, it has gone down. What? Well, did it go pop up and then it come down just a little bit recently or something like that? Yeah, it was... Uh, I, I try not to even think about no, it. No, <laughs> you, you can't think about it. It drives you crazy. But man, I'm so glad we got to do this. That's why I love this podcast is because it's an excuse oh, to talk to people that uh, that uh, we wouldn't necessarily, because we're so busy, just like pick up the phone and talk for a while. Uh, you know, we talk back and forth a little bit here and there on email or text yeah. or whatever, but sitting down like this and turning off the devices, there's so few times during the day that you get to do that because of all these inputs. That's why I love this podcast so much. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. I'm uh, just, uh, let me, gosh, hold on. I'm, I'm trying to do what we talked about. Uh, <laughs> That's what I do. I, I put the phone on airplane mode. Off. I turn there off my go. email. You know, I do all the, um, everything that beeps. I try to turn off as many things as possible that can be. Yeah, let's, let's see how that works. The problem <laughs> is, I, you know, I've always done multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. So I'm a partner in a law firm. I'm dealing with all that. Uh, I'm writing the new novel, which has to cut. And I got to write another good Lord, 52,000 words in the next three weeks. Wow. And, you know, promoting the nonfic and then doing all sorts of other stuff. And then talking to, you know, talking to a lot of people about the campaign and stuff, because for some reason people seem to want to know what I think, which is kind of stupid, but I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't do anything differently. I mean, I, I love, I, I, I just, read the idea of having a nine to five job where I have to go someplace, be there the whole time doing one thing. That's why I never wanted to be a judge mm. like my mom was, Oh, you know, I, the, the idea of having to be in one place all the time, just, ugh. Oh, but you'd be I, a fantastic like judge. Do you ever think, Man, I mean, being up there on the bench, I mean, uh, but I've seen it in action, though, and it's not exactly what you think it is by watching television uh, and no, seeing the not. one big case <laughs> and the person's up there and they get to make the big decision. Be, it's when you see it in action and know somebody that does that day in and day out, I, I understand but why mostly you wouldn't want to be there. Uh, a lot of uh, refereeing between two idiot lawyers about <laughs> uh, whether the interrogatory responses are sufficient. And oh. I'm just not interested in doing that. I'd much rather advocate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, a, a good judge is like gold, but, uh, you know, as, as for many things, it's not a job I want to do. Yeah. And I've been very lucky. I've gotten to do a bunch of things I want. I mean, I got to be in the Army. For yeah. Years. 
Um, and I got to do cool things there. You know, it, it, it's really weird how you have this thing in your background. You, you, you know it, too, that, that it, it, it's there, but it's not who you are right. completely. But sometimes it pops up. I'm at, uh, I'm at a CPAC. And I'm thinking it's going to be funny, Kurt. I'm going to go. I'm going to make some fun hits. Yeah. You know, talk about various stuff. Putin invades Ukraine the day before. And I not only deployed with Ukrainian troops, I went to Ukraine to train four times. So suddenly I'm the SME on right. Ukraine. Subject matter like expert for those listening. Yes. Yeah. That's And that, 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 that could be not fun. But uh, but you're busy. I mean, I see you on all the shows. You go on uh, all the shows. You do your two and a half minutes. Yes. <laughs> you are all uh, over Andrew the place. Breitbart kind of said, you got to go everywhere. And he, he, you know, and it, it's funny to me. Like, you've got a huge podcast. But there are a lot of guys who have a very small podcast and they're building. And I'll, and I'll go, Kurt, could, do you think you could come on my show? Oh, okay. When do you want me on? Wow. Okay. I'm so happy. And it's like, it's just me. Uh, but of course I have to come on because I want to promote you. I want to give you a chance to uh, do your thing. And I, I, I think people in this space are very generous yeah. with their time. I mean, I, 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 I don't see anybody being snotty. Well, this podcast only has 50 listeners. Yeah. Well, you know, every podcast started with 50 listeners. I started with 50 followers. Yeah. And look you at, know, yeah. but people gave me a chance to do things. And, um, you know, and I, 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 I particularly enjoy good conversations and interesting people. Yeah. Which, uh, and most of them are. I, I think most of the people in this kind of space are pretty cool. Yeah, no, so I agree. I, I agree. And it helps because it's grassroots. That's the other thing. It's not like uh, you yeah. get this one shot because you someone opened a door for you or wanted to put you on a platform for a second. Maybe you get a spike. But if you do those podcasts and jump on those local AM radio shows that have X yeah. number of listeners or whatever, that's a grassroots. That's a very powerful following. And it's not just those 50 listeners. It's their mom, their dad, their cousin, their yeah. aunt, their uncle, their friend that they tell about you or say, hey, you got to pick up this book or you got to listen to this guy. You got to follow this guy on Twitter. He was hilarious. I heard him this morning on the way to work. Like all that stuff slowly builds something that is a lot more powerful than like a one spike yes. type of a deal because they're invested in you and they get to know you that way. Well, look, I mean, you, you and I, uh, although we have, you know, some of the details are different, but you and I were both, you know, just guys in the military, just guys doing our thing. And then we created, and I kind of hate the term, but it's accurate, a brand. And you've got a, a brand that goes beyond your books, though your books have been hugely successful. And uh, we, we definitely got to talk about the show because uh, I, I, I thought you uh, portrayed a corpse uh, fabulously. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm waiting for I, the I Emmy call. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and then I have, uh, you know, I got my dual track. I uh, Thank you. You've got my nonfiction up. Yeah. Got these guys too over here. I mean, you have a yeah, lot of books. I got they, those. These aren't nearly uh, all wow. your books. You have a lot of books out there. You've been doing this I, I for do. a while. I do. This uh, is just I a small a portion of the ones that are out there. Yeah. And I've got, you know, as you might expect, a guy who went to the war college, I'll be at the party war college. I have a long-term plan. And I do, I do the nonfiction. I do the Amazon. I utilize Amazon to do fiction that uh, no publisher will touch. And you know, uh, I'm going to try a, uh, I'm going to try a crossover fiction after I finish this one, mm -hmm. which will not be as expressly political, but uh, you know, focus on the action and things. And we'll see, we'll see if, uh, uh, if, if it's worth me going traditional 
for a novel, which is very hard. I don't think people understand just how hard it is to get a novel published. The fact yeah. that you've done it and been super successful, that's the exception, man. That is not the rule. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I, 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 I watch what you're doing and I can see the plan. And it's a great plan. And it's based you know, lots of people go, well, you know, he's got a cool symbol with an ax and, you know, he's got the whole image. That's not it. What it is, is a means to deliver something people want, which is a great story, a great few hours where they're not thinking about all the uh, problems in life. And it all comes back to that, because if you are not delivering, no one can force it down people's throat, maybe once. Yeah. Not twice, not three times. It has to be something of value. You have to provide something of value. That's what it is. You have to give value to the people. Mm -hmm. You have to be uh, worth it. And and, and we both come from a world of, you know, rigorous uh, evaluation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you know, whether it was OCS or SEALs or Airborne School or whatever, it's always, uh, uh, are you good enough? And not everybody is. And I remember the people who, you know, had to take a different direction for whatever, that maybe they got unlucky and broke an ankle. Maybe it just wasn't for them. Uh, Maybe they just couldn't cut it. Right. But we're in law, you know, one guy wins, one guy loses every single time in, you know, as, as a seal, you win or those guys win. And that is not the world that normal people live in. The mm. world that normal people live in is use your inside voices, uh, use your words. Uh, everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. And I, I don't see how you can become. I, I don't see how you can. Uh, I, I just don't get that. Yeah. I, I always want to achieve. Oh, yeah. I want to do something. And you're doing That's it. You're doing it each and every day. Like when I talk about yeah. providing something of value, like you do Twitter. Yeah. Well, like you are, you are good at Thank Twitter. You know, I know it's kind of, yeah, uh, double edged, but, uh, you're so good at it. And, it, and I want to talk to you about your comedic background because I don't know too much about yeah. that side of it. You know, you just mentioned it in a sentence here or there every now and again, but, uh, but you're providing something of value with those insights and, you know, yeah. throwing a little sarcasm in there for those of us who speak it, uh, point out some ironies and you do it in a way that is, uh, so unique. Uh, that you are, you're providing that something of value. And I try to do that as well. No matter if it's a sentence in the book or if it's one post on Instagram or one tweet, as much thought goes into every single sentence on social media as into the books, because that's what I owe the reader. That's what I owe that person who's trusted me with their time, who's following me. And they're never going to get that time back. And they're trusting me with that. So I take that very seriously. And I put that time, energy, and effort into every sentence I write or every engagement that I have. Oh my gosh, this is this is spooky because that's uh, as a lawyer, you only have limited space to make your points. As a stand-up comic, everything you say should be set up, punchline, or tag. And I was just watching a comic that I, I knew the other day, and I'm like, okay, you're just talking. Set up, punch, tag. Uh, everything has to hit. Interesting. You don't have time. Everything yeah. has to hit. Every you look at a town hall column. If you're a stand-up. And I've had Dennis Miller, who's like my hero, because okay, you're a funny cat. You're a hilarious <laughs> cat. I love your columns. And I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and he's just north of you, right? He's California. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's Santa Barbara, I think, right? Santa Barbara. Yeah. But uh, I write my political columns like a stand-up thing because everything, step, punch, ah. no fat, no filler. You know, it's not like you're going to bring your waffle iron in your rucksack when you're on a march. <laughs> I like waffles, but not that much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's a time for waffles. It's, it, it's not when you got to get, you know, five kilometers in 30 minutes. Well, it's interesting that you say that, that you set up your columns like that, because now I can see it because I've been reading them for years. And if you're not following or reading your columns on townhall.com, anybody who's listening or watching should definitely do that and follow you on Twitter as well. But uh, there, there's, you break it down in a way that uh, like this one right here, I printed this one off in particular, no compromise on guns because I thought this, I mean, they're all like that. And, but now that you say how you set them up and how you think these through, now I see how logical you set logically you set these up and why, which makes them so powerful and digestible, readable, approachable, um, yeah. for people. So people should well, 100% remember, check these out. I, I also spent over two decades, uh, in a job where my job was to give instructions to hopped up 18 to 20 year olds <laughs> who sometimes had to do things they didn't particularly want to do. Yeah. And not a lot of time for fancy flowery language. You be direct, get to the point and get it on mm-hmm. and, and don't be ambiguous, be crystal clear. So there's no mistake, you know, cause you know, you know, there's always that one guy You go down the mission. What are you going to do? I'm going to defend here. What are you going to do? I'm going to defend here. What are you going to do? I'm going to defend here. What are you going to do? I'm going to attack. There's always that guy Uh in the the orders group. There's always that guy. Interesting. You got to be crystal clear about what you, what you, what the point is you're trying to make. And I I really enjoy writing. I always Mm -hmm. have. Uh, My first thing published was something about a battleship. I was in fourth grade in the San Mateo Times. My mm. teacher sent it in from school. I don't know. It was like a poem or something. Wow. Uh, remember, I came from a Navy family. Uh, I'm the green sheep. Yeah. Did you dedicate, uh, is it this book that you dedicated or one my of the dad. other ones? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Lieutenant Commander, dad, right? Lieutenant Commander Schlichter. Just, yeah. Like, to me, the quintessential citizen soldier. He uh, uh, went to Penn State, uh, became a uh, surface warfare officer, served. Uh, he was there when Alan Shepard uh, was picked up on the wow. late campaign. Uh, and then he was a reservist uh, till he retired. I mean, just an assistant soldier. And you look yeah. at dad and you don't think, oh, you know, there's, you know, the great Santini. Uh-huh. That, that wasn't what it was about. But it was about serving his country. And both, both, uh, both my grandfathers, and this is fun, they're both Navy. Uh, they were both coaches in rural Pennsylvania. My dad, uh, uh, dad's father in Chambersburg uh, and uh, uh, my mom's father near State College. They both went into the Navy over age in World War II. Uh, they both uh, went and trained, and because they were coaches, they took over Marine Corps fighter recreation areas in the Pacific. Didn't know each other, but they both had the same job huh. in the Pacific. And um, I've got the tapes of one of them uh, somewhere talking about, you know, sailing somewhere and having torpedoes coming at them. You know, my grandfather got blown up by, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighting off an airstrike. Uh, didn't take a purple heart. I guess he only had a couple little fragments. Wow. Uh, but I mean, these are just normal guys, but that's yeah. what normal guys do. And it, it, it was it, fun story. Uh, my mom's father played poker a lot and he kept notes. I had his diary and one of the guys he played poker with was a Marine Corps fighter pilot named Joe Foss. Wow. wow. Medal of honor, recipient. governor yep. of uh, South Dakota, NRA. NRA. Yeah. Gets better. 
uh, when I deployed to Kosovo uh, with uh, uh, 40th Division California Guard in 2004 to 2006, one of the guys I went with was a guy named Captain Bill Fox, mm. his nephew. Wow. Uh, and Bill, and when I became a squadron commander, Bill came over and was one of my staff officers and just a terrific guy. And uh, I, I, I copied the pages out of the diary for him. And he, he got a big kick out of it. Oh, but man. I mean, remember, remember the military is a family business, which is one of the problems with the military now, because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the older guys used to say, yeah, do a hit to the Marines are now saying, hold on. So that, that's, that's a real problem. It but is. I'm, and we're seeing I'm that sure in recruitment, I think. Yeah, I know. We're seeing that, seeing that in recruitment. I mean, it's a, it's a, a tough problem to, to run into as a, as a nation, obviously. Um, but did you do the stand-up comic stuff before the military, during the military, after uh, the military? During. during. Well, what, what happened is I, you know, I went so to- you're like a lieutenant colonel and then you're out there at the comedy club on Wednesdays? Like, what's going on? I, I was. <laughs> uh, I, um, good God. I'm sorry. Somebody just bumped me. Um, <laughs> I, uh. I was out there uh, uh, at UC San Diego and I wrote in the comedy newspaper and the political newspaper and I was writing jokes. In the 90s, I wrote those uh, bar jokes. You know, they had that that little bar trivia thing. I wrote the TV questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I bought BMW doing that. I got 350 a joke. There you go. I wrote a lot of Then I uh, broke up with my girlfriend uh, who I'd been living with for a few years because her dog died. And that was like, there's nothing left of the relationship after that. <laughs> so, um, so I decided, well, I'm going to try stand-up. And I started doing stamp around Southern California. It did about five or six years until I deployed again. Mm. Oh, and had a kid. And my wife said, we're not going out three nights a week to sit in dingy bars while you perform for 10 drunk people. <laughs> Wise uh, woman. You know, you do very small places. I did some bigger places. Um, but I, you know, you just go up and you keep doing it. I liked it. Uh, stand-up comics are nuts. Yeah. To me, it's Sudoku. How do you put a joke together? Uh-huh. And and I I I you know I I I joined in some workshops and stuff and got an understanding of uh, how you figure out these uh, you know how you figure out the jokes, how you make it happen. Yeah. And uh, it is. Uh, uh, it was never, I, 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 I was never afraid to go on stage. A lot of people are terrified. Yeah. I never had stage fright. I always assume everybody should be listening to me all the time. That doesn't shock me. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> kind of helpful being a lawyer. Um, but yeah, stand up, uh, stand up really got me, you know, much more, uh, uh clear about what mm. I was saying, clear about the jokes, no wandering around to get to the point. I'm not one of those, I don't tell tales. I tell stories. Oh mm. God, no! Don't tell me stories. <laughs> I think a lot of. I think the perfect joke is "Take my wife, please." <laughs> it, 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 it's just you just look at it and you just kind of marvel at just how how smart it is, how compact <laughs> it is, how it gets to the point. It's like a it's like a it's like a thing of beauty. Yeah, and that's kind of how I feel about jokes. Um, I, I just. I really enjoy doing it, and I think it mixes well with the political stuff which I uh, that I do. And I think yeah. you can—I I don't think you have to be one of those bowtie nerd conservatives, yeah. You know, who you just want to give a wedgie and leave hanging off a flagpole in front of the high school. 
<laughs> I, I, you don't I mince even... words on anything either. You know, you are you are very direct. I think people appreciate that. They appreciate that uh, authenticity. You're not talking around anything ever. Um, you're no. you're delivering what you think in a logical way. And uh, you know, at this, are you also doing stand up and in the army? Obviously, when the LA riots happened, like how long are you in the army before you no, get called up for LA later. riots? It was uh, the late nineties. Uh, I got out of the army. I, I went to Desert Storm. I ran a chemical decontamination platoon, which is oh. essentially a giant car wash. Wow. Uh, and I was attached to 7 Corps Maine, which was, uh, and I was like, why am I sidelined? Because that was where I was supposed to be. I, I ended up walking through, while the battle's going on, hearing radio calls I would later read about. Mm. And I, I talk about it in the book. I, I was at the location where America was at its most powerful. Mm-hmm. And I never, I didn't put that together for decades. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, all my guys came home. I got out. I had done my uh, uh, initial tour. And, uh, yeah, I, I was at Loyola Law School. And I I didn't know a lot of that. And a lot of people didn't share my experience. Mm. Uh, you know, I get, I get to Loyola the first day. And I'm just, you know, literally out of a war zone. And these guys are walking around any sweatshirts yeah and I'm, it's completely alien to me where it hadn't been four years before i was a right. different person yeah um through four, three years of law school i never once went to class unprepared yet you're supposed to read a couple cases it never occurred i mean i don't care if i partied that night when i got to class i had read the case now maybe there's a difference between reading the case and reading them closely yeah but it was like you know, you party all night, you show up for formation, it's time for a five-mile run, and even though the whole gang smells like a distillery, <laughs> you're doing the five-mile run because you got to do the five-mile run. Right. Okay? I mean, you just do it. And so I was in a different mental place than a lot of these guys. I, 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 just, I just had this sense I needed to get back, so I went to the Cal Guard. And I said, I'll join, and I ended up joining an infantry unit in um, uh, uh, Inglewood with the idea that I would change over to infantry, which I eventually did. And like on my, uh, I was not impressed initially. Uh, I, I'm there and I'm, you know, I'm 160 pounds. My uniform is perfect. You know, I was in seven core. We were strack. I mean, I would, and I look at these guys and they're not in, some of them are not in great shape. <laughs> and some of their hair, that's just not the standards, Jack. And uh, their uniforms. I mean, have they ever seen an iron? Do they? Well, I'm like, what the hell is this? This is yeah. not what I'm used to. But I, I was smart enough by then to shut up and mm. listen. Mm. And we get to the riots, and they call us for the riot. I actually call and I say, are we going to get mobilized? No, 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 we're not. I go, oh, okay. So I immediately pack. And uh, I had sold all my guns in Germany. Oh, no. So I had no firearms. So I have to drive into Inglewood, which is on fire, without a gun. Uh, I got there. Uh, the guard, in its then wisdom, had uh, centralized all the ammo in Central California because it's easier to count. Uh, yes, yes. Right? This does not surprise uh, me either. So everybody brought their own. One guy was a postman. He literally walks in with a duffel bag, dumps more firearms than I'd ever seen in my life on a, ta- on, on a table. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, but uh, I'm with these guys. And we, it's like, okay, we got to roll. And in like three hours, 
these guys are ready to move a battalion of 500 people in an organized fashion. I'd never seen anything like if they said, you know, Slicker, you got to go to the field. All right, we'll start prepping today. It's Monday. By Friday, we'll be ready. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. These guys, everybody knew their job because they'd always done it. They knew each other. They knew their team. Uh, they were motivated because most of them lived in the area that was burning down. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is something I didn't expect. Yeah. And these were just great guys. And uh, I, I really love my guardsmen. They are unique. Um, if you have a stick up your ass, you're not going to do well. Mm. Um, I, I remember my battalion, my uh, brigade commander at one point had to deal with Wesley Clark. You remember him? Oh yeah. The ultimate in stick up your ass. <laughs> and, um, uh, he took great pleasure in going to Clark and going, yeah, uh, I'm going to have these two sergeants, this male and female, I'm going to put them in a tent together. And Clark goes, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? I go, well, they're married. General. <laughs> You know, just don't fuck with him. Uh, (laughs) What happened uh, to him? What is he? I haven't heard from him in a while. He's sitting on a board of a few of boards of a few different companies or something. I'm sure he's on Raytheon's board or something. (laughs) Uh, You know, the Peter Principle. Don't get me started, but I'll ask you about that stuff later. But I want to know about driving in to LA. So you get this call, you you're packed already. You grab your bags, you throw it in your. I don't know if if you have your BMW 350i at this point Uh, from comedy. Beretta at the time. Oh, nice. And, uh, <laughs> so, and so you're I driving this thing in. Don't you get stopped by like a cop or something? Isn't there like yeah. some roadblocks? Yes. I get stopped at a roadblock on La Brea near Rodeo, not Rodeo Drive, the Rodeo that's south of uh, 10. Mm. And the copies, and he had, I remember he had a Remington 870. And nice. he looks at me and goes, Where the hell do you think <laughs> you're going? I, I'm going to my unit. He says, Do you have a gun? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. He goes, you sure you want to go in there? I'm like, nope, <laughs> not at all. I just drive really fast. Uh, I got in okay. My uh, battalion commander, who's a very good friend, I just had dinner with him last week. Uh, he, uh, he, he's driving in. People are getting shot around him. Everything's on fire. Uh, we eventually roll out. And my guys, you know, to bizarre place. They went, on, went up to the Honor Rancho where all the uh, prisoners are. Mm. And the prisoners were kind of rioting so my troops and I, I just love my troops they had these like they had red flashlights so they started putting the red lights on the guys which they thought were uh you know uh, uh designators all of them drop onto the ground and start behaving oh, wow. you know uh improvise to solve problems Jeez. Uh, i remember going down uh through south central i'm this suburban kid from northern california i i never go to south central okay uh, in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, I was coming back from CNN. I, I took a I took a shortcut through South Central. I knew from being in the guard. I got pulled over by a cop in my BMW. Was, are you trying to, you know, essentially, are you trying to cop drugs? Uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm taking a I'm taking a shortcut. But uh, I'm, I'm down there completely out of my element. My guys, of course, are taking care of me. And uh, this woman comes out and basically hugs me and just says, thank you guys for being here. Because the cops had left. And we took over, and we didn't take a, a, a lot of guff from these guys. Um, uh, there, there, a lot of stuff went on behind the scenes. Years later, there was a briefing where some general came down and said to uh, our guys, "We and the Cal Guard fired a total of twenty rounds during the LA riots," and our guys basically fell out of their seats. Mm. You know, if you use your own gun, you don't have to account for ammo. Oh wow! So. Um, 
one woman is just so grateful to us. She was like giving us pizza. She's so grateful because she says, our, my kids can play in the park. They haven't been able to play in the park in years. You, you drove the scumbags out of there. Wow. And it, it just blew my mind. This was a whole new world for me. How long were you guys uh, there? Uh, about three weeks. Jeez. We were there for a couple of days on state active duty, got federalized for, I think, 14 days. And then we were there for another week or so. We were first in, last out. Wow. And what did you have? Uh, and, um, Humvees that are not up armored at this point? Or is there like, or do you have like a Bradley fighting no, no, vehicle? No, regular you... Humvees. Yeah. This is, uh, this right. is a, you know, plastic doors. Yeah. Uh, they generally didn't screw with us. Yeah. Because they didn't understand us. They're, they're these guys, they had vests and guns and, and uh, assault rifles, right. real assault rifles. Um, we, we had, uh, I think we had MA1s. Uh, so we had a uh, 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 select fire and there, there were these little things we were supposed to put on them that would keep it to single shot. But it's remarkable how they all accidentally, they, they malfunctioned or fall off. Yeah. They just <laughs> fell off. It was, it was remarkable. <laughs> uh, you just couldn't keep these uh, uh, selector switch holders uh, uh, intact. Oh, that's strange. I've never heard that before. Uh, that there was a, like a physical thing that they would give people to put on. Yeah. In the military. Yeah. You had to screw it in and that, uh, Oh, well, sir, it broke. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, there was one, let's see, one guy, uh, had tried to rape a woman. He's running away. Our guys opened fire on him and, uh, basically castrated him with a 5.56 round, which seems fair. Yeah. Uh, another guy was a, uh, a drug dealer from El Salvador, ran a, uh, ran a, uh, support battalion roadblock once and then did it again. He took 14 rounds, uh, closed casket. Mm. Uh, I later studied all this stuff to write a law review article on civil support to military operations, yeah. uh, which is the first law review article published on that stuff. Occasionally still gets cited. It's completely embarrassing now because mm. uh, I didn't know anything. I wasn't a lawyer <laughs> yet, but it, it, it was nice to get cited. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, one experience to see your whole society go from perfectly normal uh, at four o'clock to, you know, 10 o'clock. It's all on fire, man. Society is fragile. People got another glimpse of that briefly, you know, a couple summers ago um, with COVID in a summer of civil unrest, as we like to call it. Um, yep. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it informs obviously that experience, I think informs a lot of your yeah. fiction and also nonfiction. Um, and this was interesting in this part, I think it was near closer to the end. Yeah. It says, uh, to suppress the Los Angeles riots, president Bush ordered in one division, the 40th infantry division of the California army national guard, plus battalions from the seventh infantry division out of Fort Ord and Marines out of camp Pendleton. This was at least four brigades worth, at least 16 battalions, including armor, cavalry, and artillery acting as infantry. So it took about 8% of America's battalions to suppress one short riot, not an actual insurgency. And this is in one yes. city. Um, so that's, uh, that's interesting and very telling and something people should uh, uh, think about. <laughs> uh, yes, leaders, I, I, I hear a lot of, uh, uh, I hear a lot of, uh, well, dumb people. <laughs> uh, talking about what a civil war would look like. I tried to write about yeah, what it might look like uh, in various things, because, of course, we have a spectrum of conflict between low-grade. Uh, we had a low-grade urban insurgency uh, among leftists in the early 70s, uh, Weather Underground, Black mm. Panthers, SLA, yep. uh, all the way to, you know, Gettysburg to the Revenge. Mm. Um, 
what 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 might it look like? And I, I just don't think people understand just how few people in the military there are. Mm. And how many I, I remember the cops would tell us in the riots, it drove us crazy. They would say, we need a squad of troops. Well, a squad to them was like a squad car. Right. Uh, but what they would say is we want, you know, to secure a corner. They didn't understand that to secure a corner is not a guy with a rifle. It's a bunch of guys mm-hmm. with rifles replacing them, uh, bringing mm-hmm. them in and out, feeding them, fueling them, doing medical yeah. stuff, paying them, right. uh, transporting them, the tooth to tail. You know, but remember, you you were the scalpel. I was the sledgehammer. Okay, <laughs> and sledgehammers are mostly a handle, and and the tooth to tail is incredible. Remember, if you're moving a division, you're moving a city. When I was a deputy brigade commander, acting brigade commander, five thousand guys. That's a town of five thousand people on wheels. Mm-hmm. I'm doing everything that a five thousand uh, a town with a population of five thousand you know, in Iowa or Florida or Vermont mm-hmm. or wherever does. I am taking care of sanitation. I'm taking care of health. I'm taking care of legal. I'm taking psychological problems. I'm taking care of veterinary problems. I'm moving a, this is a moving city mm-hmm. that also fights. <laughs> uh, and I, I just don't think people understand that. And there aren't that many of them. There's probably, as for brigades, you know, if you of various types between infantry, marine, whatever. If there's 80 active in reserve, I'd be surprised. Yeah. And it took, you know, it took at least four, five, six, seven, eight to uh, just for Los Angeles, never mind Orange County, never mind San Bernardino, never mind Ventura. Right. And it wasn't all of Los uh, Angeles. It was, it was certain areas you know, of Los Angeles. Yeah, it wasn't all Los Angeles. It was a part of it. Yeah. Um, so anybody who said, well, you know, now the military could crush an insurgency. Well, yes. So maybe. I love, and you're the only person. Like I've read, I read a lot about this stuff. I've read a lot about this, these sorts of things, my entire life. And uh, I think the first time I saw you talking about this, uh, it was me reading one of your town hall articles years ago, and uh, you were bringing up these points that I'd been so busy, but I hadn't really thought through. And I think you bring them up. You bring up in the fiction, and obviously you bring them up in your articles on town hall and in in your your new book here, but you think about things that others don't really think about. They think about that quick thing. They see military. It's just a picture from a movie or what they've seen from Iraq or Afghanistan. And then they're on to the next distraction or whatever. And you say, well, okay, these drone people, uh, will they have to go home? Where do they live? Where are their family? Like you bring up all these points that really no one else is out there talking about. You've taken a breath. And, uh, you know, for people that listen to you on Fox for a, you know, a minute and uh, two and a half minutes or however long you have, they might not realize like how much thought that you've put into all these things and that you're not actively calling for a civil war. You are pointing out a lot of reasons why we should not (laughs) devolve to this level. And, uh, but but you you think it through in a way that most people don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you and I have been both in places that had them and they're not nice places. No. Um, so but I, I think people are a little flippant and frivolous about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, military stuff is much harder than people understand. All people think about, even for SEALs, the most you know dedicated, combat-focused, lean, mean force, all they think you guys do is, in your career, you probably spent an hour in the physical act of kicking doors. <laughs> Maybe a little Everything more. Else is a little more. I got a, a campaign where it was 11 days 
worth of like pitch street fighting, like what I looked around and thought okay. it looked like right. movies that's like World a, War II. That is, but that that's the exception. That is definitely an exception. That is yeah. an exception. I mean, there are a bunch of guys walking around with CIVs who, who got in one firefight for 20 minutes. Mm. And I don't begrudge them that. That's that's the standard. I don't have one. Why should I begrudge them? Uh, but, you know, the, the, the day of guys uh, in contact for, you know, 200 days straight in the uh, uh, Northern European theater, that's that doesn't happen right now. You get yeah. rotated out a lot. But most of, most of what you've done is preparing. Yeah. Training. Oh, yeah. That's logistics. It. Your job is planning. to prepare for war. That is your exactly. that is your job. Exactly. Exactly. The you know the the old uh, cliche. You know, amateurs talk tactics. Uh, uh, yeah, professionals talk professionals logistics. Talk logistics. Yeah. Well, I would expand it to logistics, training, planning, mm-hmm. etc. The 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 last part of a fight is the fight. Yeah. And you and, and people don't understand that they think it's all about that um you know they they and i i know i you know especially in my books my heroes always get into gunfights look a guy who gets into 20 gunfights he's going to be dead statistically <laughs> i'm putting my cash down on him not not yeah, making that's it. why it's fiction he's that's why it's going to be too hurt to keep going because yeah. if you're in 20 gunfights if they got a five percent chance of winning <laughs> the enemy is, even if you're going to win 95 percent of them 20 gunfights. Yeah. You know, you're like having hits. Um, I, I think people take, I don't think people take, uh, people look at these things realistically. That's what yeah. I tried to do in the book. Yeah. And I try to include the little fi- uh, fictional vignettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from what's a, uh, you know, a liberal wine woman uh, in blue America who, you know, sides with, you know, sides with the blue people. Well, how's she going how's she going to feed her kids? Yeah. And it ain't going to be the organic kale that, you know, Caden likes. <laughs> right. Uh, um, or what happens when some of these uh, uh, urban uh, uh, punks decide they're going out into the country, you know, and they meet up uh, Americans who maybe weren't the kind of folks that they up with. Uh, and the last line of that vignette is, hand me that bucket of lime. <laughs> okay. Not, not, a, not a happy ending. Yeah. Uh, for them. Right, right. We talk about a national divorce. You talk about it in on town hall articles. There's a uh, chapters in here that uh, that deal with that. Um, can you talk about that? Because I've thought about that as well. And you know, the only thing that gives me hope really these days is I think back to the end of the Civil War, and I think, okay, that was pr- we were pretty divided. We came back together, but also, what didn't we have yeah. then? We did not have social media. We didn't have these nope. huge companies that profit from this division. Um, you know, politicians and these tech companies—they're the ones that that benefit from yep. the division. Uh, we're walking right yes. into an L ambush. It's an L ambush of tech and yep. uh, it's right there. We're walking right into that. Politicians here, tech here, we're walking right in the middle of it. And you, and, and you can't almost not, because you have government over here. We have to have a touch point there because we live in this country. And then you have tech up here. You don't have to maybe, but it's getting pretty close where you have to have some sort of a touch point with, uh, with big tech, especially if you're running a business. And then, so what does that mean? If you're walking in as a business into that L ambush, it's, uh, well, it, exactly. it's not good, but national divorce. What's, um, uh, and, and I think what if we did have social media at the end of the civil war, like, <laughs> would, would we be here today? Uh, I'm not sure it would be super constructive. The, the, no. Remember the, the order of battle after the civil war was interesting because you had, you had much more of a geographic, just, uh, uh, breakdown, um, 
here, even though in the Civil War, you did have elements of, of the Union within the South. That's how we got West Virginia. Uh, Tennessee was torn. It, it stayed Union, but it had uh, Confederate uh, elements in it. Uh, here now, you know, you look at a red state like Texas and you got big blue blotch called Austin right there. Mm -hmm. So it's a quote unquote divorce, uh, more difficult. Yeah. How do you split it up? Right. I mean, you know, is it Amber Heard and Johnny Depp? I hope we're Johnny Depp. <laughs> right. Uh, Rockies, just a little bit, a little bit east of the Rockies line down the middle. Uh, yeah, West, mean, you know, you got the, we got ports, we have, uh, we have energy, we have yeah, oil I up mean, there, you know, pretty natural well, resources. I mean, I, <laughs> say, say you want to split it up well okay california obviously blue what about those ports what about the navy who gets the who gets the teddy roosevelt is are the blue states going to want to pay for their military <laughs> i mean the, these are good questions uh, how about the national debt are you going to take your phone out what if what if what if they split the national debt and the blue decides not to pay it or the red uh red starts to uh uh, you know, what, what if the red decides, well, we've got to go help uh, Israel fight Iran? Mm -hmm. well, I mean, look, the thing I, I, I keep coming back to is the answer is all there. It's all in the Constitution, the greatest document for governing human beings uh, in the history of the world. And it is uh, it, it's frustrating to me that uh, uh, our ruling class is uh, kind of squandering the inheritance it received. And, yeah. Now, they didn't build this country. They don't feed it. They don't fuel it. They were handed it. They certainly don't defend it in large, uh, for, for the most part. Uh, there, there, you know, there, there are exceptions of ruling class folks who did serve. But by and large, that service is not their watchword. Mm -hmm. Service is kind of the province for the middle class and uh, partly for the working class. The officers tend to come from the middle class. Uh, the working class uh, tends to uh, uh, provide the NCO Corps and the enlisted corps. That's kind of how it works. It, it's not exact. And there are exceptions. Uh, I'm not disrespecting anybody who served. Uh, but that's basically how the country works. But you have a ruling, you know, defend the country. But also, and I think just as importantly in its own way, the people who feed the country and fuel the country. Uh, there are a lot of people running our country who have never done a job that required that they sweat. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people running the country who have never been in a fight. They've never thrown a punch and they've never taken one. Now, I'm not Mike Tyson, but I've got my ass kicked and I've kicked a couple people's asses. And I think these were uh, very instructive. And they taught me, you don't want to get in a situation where either you have to kick someone's ass or they want to kick yours. Because <laughs> It's called wisdom. Best case, called it's wisdom. not going to be, be a happy ending. But you look at Twitter, and one of the things, you know, I, I kind of grew up in the 70s, and there were a lot of playground fights. I'm thinking, there are a lot of people on this on Twitter who've never gotten the shit kicked out of them. Mm -hmm. Because they're running their mouths like people who never got their asses kicked. Yep. And no consequences. No, you know, the, the social consequences that I grew up with, that you probably grew up with, um, they don't exist online. No. And... There is a remember, there's always going to be a race to the bottom. And you look at uh, our president, he's now uh, calling half of his political, half the country, his political opponents, semi fascist. When he gets to full fascist, does he declare war on us? How, where, where do you go from there? Yeah. It, 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 it's not just your policies are bad, uh, you're, you're a semi fascist. Even 
Thomas Ricks, who used to be a, a, a kind of a respected reporter on the military, right. uh, at least not overtly anti-military, which I guess passes for yeah, pro-military stuff. Yeah. establishment today. Fiasco yeah, he, great. Did, he, 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 he basically retweeted some moron uh, calling the uh, Republicans the peculiar institution, of course, referring to slavery. Mm. I mean, huh? Where do you go from there? Yeah. Okay, now you've designated us as bad as slave owners. What do you? Th how do you think this works now? Yeah. How does this country work when you have decided that people who disagree with you are uh, absolutely devoid of any kind of moral standing? What you're essentially saying is these people are so bad they have no right to uh, any say in their own governance, any of the civil rights to speak, to make their case, to be heard. Yeah. And, and what are we supposed to do? Go, well, I didn't meet the Rick's test. Right. Well, that's and where we're where devolving. That, that's where it devolves. And social media just spur, just uh, accelerates that, uh, you know, that downward spiral like, in many, in many cases. Um, but I love that what you're saying. Like, I want to read this, uh, this paragraph right here. It, it ties into what you're saying here. You say, and, and also I want to say that by the end, you talk about being an optimist. So I know we're talking about a lot of things here that sound very negative, but uh, that's also what I really respect about you is that you you have this optimistic uh, sprinkle through everything that you that you do. Yeah. And a lot of it's that, I think that the, the comedy side and the, the logic and the sarcasm in there, but it's also real. Um, and and that yeah. when we're talking about a lot of negative things, but you do have a uh, an, an optimistic ending here. But uh, But here's from the beginning. Uh, remember that America's decline was a choice, one made by an exhausted, corrupt, and incompetent elite. Who makes up that elite? The cult cultural trust fund babies who inherited a great nation and have neither any appreciation for it nor a clue how to lead it. It includes unaccomplished rich people, credentialed <laughs> mediocrities, and those allied with them transactionally, such as government employees. Uh, and by affinity, such as the Twitter blue check marks and the social justice mobs. Together, this ruling elite is united by a dedication to its own power and status and a contempt for everyone else, not unlike that once felt for heretics. When Hillary Clinton called the people who were uh, insufficiently in awe of her deplorable, she meant it. It was a moral judgment. They were bad people because they failed to accept her caste creed and secularly divine right to rule. Like that's good stuff. And that's like what uh, wow, every paragraph like in here. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what, that what you're saying. <laughs> but it is, we, we inherited this amazing. Yeah. I always think about what people sacrificed from the inception of this country up through today uh, to give us these freedoms that are now being squandered and undermined by people who don't even know that history, haven't put the time in to study that history and realize why we have these freedoms. First Amendment, Second Amendment, obviously, Fourth Amendment. Uh, all of these freedoms that we have here, all these options and opportunities that it affords us, which doesn't appear out of nowhere, people fought and sacrificed no. for that. And now if we squander that, it's not about us. It's really for our kids and these future generations. These, these votes that we cast today, these decisions that we make today aren't for our tomorrow. It's for our kids tomorrow and their grandkids and their grandkids. So it's a, it's a huge responsibility. But once again, Twitter and social media don't really, uh, aren't really set up for deep thought. And uh, you're probably retweeting well, something from someone who also did not put that requisite time, energy, and effort into studying the issue at hand. <laughs> In most cases, 99% well, of those cases, I would say. I think we see a lot of people, uh, particularly history, and I, I think it's important. History is vitally important. 
why what why doesn't the ruling uh, elite are 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 smart progressive betters why do they not read history because they don't think they need it because they have the answers already mm. interesting so all it's all it's going to do is throw in a cognitive dissonance mm. you know all it's going to do is upset the apple cart uh they're just going to expose themselves to someone who uh who's a heretic because the lesson that they they draw from history is not the lesson. Uh, it, it does not support the narrative they want. If you walk in knowing everything, why the hell would you study? Yeah, and that's you know, and, and that's the thing about our higher institute. You really don't have to study. You the, the hardest day at Harvard is the day you write your application. <laughs> Once you get in, you're done. I mean, you you can flunk out. But you basically have to try, or you have to quit like uh, Zuckerberg. Uh, and once you have that Harvard credential, it opens doors. But Harvard credential doesn't tell you anything. Is this a person who knows something about the Romans and how the Romans influenced the founders? Is this a guy who writes well? Is this a guy who knows math? It doesn't tell all it tells you is this is a guy who went to Harvard and managed to uh, uh, adopt enough of its uh, preconceived notions and prejudices. Uh, to survive there for to however many years. That's all you know. And the, the, the people coming out of our quote-unquote best colleges are distinctly unimpressive. The whole ruling class <laughs> is unimpressive. They've never done anything. Yeah, and now uh, everyone else has to pay for them, apparently, in this transfer. Uh, oh, this yeah, oh, that's just, <laughs> so, you know, okay. I... Let's let's take that back to Rome for a second, because you do mention Rome quite a bit here. You mention it in your, like your writings uh, every now and again. Yes. Uh, so what parallels can you draw in uh, as far as uh, empires in decline? Well, look, uh, uh, first of all, when I when I compare America to Rome, it is not a straight comparison. I know. Yep. It, it, there, there are uh, themes and echoes, but it, it, it's very so we're, we're, we're just like Rome. We're not just like Rome. Rome was like Rome. The human nature illustrated by what happened in Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, Rome was interesting. First of all, we talk about the fall of Rome, but Rome fell in the sense it changed into something else while also maintaining important uh, similarities multiple times. It was a kingdom first. Uh, the uh, people got sick of having a, a tyrant, so they threw out the kings and became a republic. And the republic uh, gradually included more and more people, though it was never uh, uh, you know anything like a uh, uh, an American democracy where everyone was an equal citizen, although it did have the concept of citizenship. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may not have gotten a vote in the Senate, but if you were a citizen of Rome, you know, you couldn't just be hauled off and executed. They had to have a process. Uh, slaves or foreigners, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're a citizen of Rome, even if you're the most humble farmer, you have certain rights. Uh, and that's an important advance. Uh, the Republic fell because of human nature. Uh, the, the, the Republic was interesting because it embodied many of the things that we see later in the founders uh, and the Constitution, including uh, checks and balances. The way they did it, they had, you know, instead of one consul, uh, the chief executive, they had two, and they had to agree on everything. Uh, sadly, they also had to both agree on how to fight which was not helpful when they faced Han uh, uh, Hannibal at Kanai. Mm -hmm. uh, one guy said, one 
whose day it was to command, said, we're not fighting, we're not fighting. The next guy, the guy said, oh, yeah, let's fight. And, well, there went the cream of uh, Roman uh, society, 80,000 dead in a day wow. uh, by hand, mind you, uh, which is uh, horrifying and mind-boggling, but kind of puts things into perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, the um, Romans... Uh, into an empire over a couple hundred years as they started they they had kind of an unwritten constitution and while they had that things were were good Mm. but then people started looking for ways to get around it exceptions Mm. uh you know it's this situation so important we have to change things we have to get rid of this norm and getting rid of the norms became the norm wait a sec this sounds eerily familiar I, i know right Man, and so, so what? What accelerated things then? Is there is was there an acceleration point? Was there gasoline thrown on the fire at, at some point? Uh, yeah. Uh, you 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 had Sulla and Marius fighting it out. One was more or less considered the conservative. The other guy was considered the agent of change. Uh, for most people, that really didn't matter. They mm. were about their own power within this ruling elite, which is also very similar. Mm. Um, the, uh, then, then you had Caesar come along and, uh, you know, Caesar continued a lot of the trends, which is, in, uh, which importantly included, uh, changing the loyalty of the citizen soldiers to make it a professional army that was personally loyal to him. Mm. So when he needed to fight and eventually he did, he had an army, mm. a personal army. And uh, that that issue comes up in uh, the seventh Kelly Turnbull book, which I'm going to try and get out in October. Um, I think I, I, I find that very interesting. And of course, uh, uh, the, the ruling class struck back, killed Caesar, uh, sparking yet another war among these uh, elite. Uh, Augustus came out on top and created the empire. Although, if you're a normal Roman, you're not really seeing a huge change. The Rome Rome changed completely, but didn't change at all mm. when it became an empire. So, and that that's a thing I'm warning about with America. When I talk about the fall of America, I don't necessarily mean it's going to Mad Max and you know the humongous is ruling the wasteland. It will look a lot a, a, a changed America, a fallen America will look a lot like America at least for a while, mm. but in important ways like whether we're free or not it'll be very, very different. Yeah. And there's something you say here also that I think is important. Uh, you write, the age of narrative was beginning and narrative always yep. trumps mere truth. What's, uh, what do you mean by that? Look, narrative... Uh, I mean, the narrative, narrative, the narrative you hear it all the story. time, but it's only about yeah, 20 years old. the story we tell ourselves mm-hmm. and try and tell others and get people to listen along and accept. It, it is a lens to look at reality through. And everybody has narratives. Um, you know, the narratives of the founding fathers as uh, uh, the architects of freedom. It's a narrative. It's a true narrative. Uh, the problem is narratives can be self-serving. Narratives uh, can be designed to reinforce not the common good, but personal benefit. Yeah. And that is... Uh, 
That is what we're seeing now. We are seeing a elite that is really prioritizing our because because every you know every every society has kind of a ruling class, the people who run the things. And uh, sometimes it's self-selected. Most people want nothing to do with politics, mm -hmm. but some people do, and they kind of naturally gravitate to it. Uh, you know, rich people uh, have, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, have extraordinary power. But the kind of unspoken deal is that they take care of business. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to take a little off the top, but you're going to get security and prosperity and you're going to have a country you'd be proud of and you're not going to get screwed with. And, you know, if the congressman who's making 179K a year uh, leaves office 10 years later, a multi, multi-millionaire. <laughs> it's shocking. You know, I'm not gonna get, people are not going to get super upset if everything's running on time, you know? If they're not getting mugged walking out the door, they're just going yeah. ah, politics as usual. Right. But if that's all they do, if they don't deliver their part of the bargain, if they don't earn their vigorous, yeah, then people will start getting mad. And uh, uh, American history is full of times when people got mad. The, the silent majority for Richard Nixon, mm. the uh, Tea Party, uh, what's his name, Ross Perot, Donald Trump. Mm. These are uh, the American people saying, you're not cutting it. Yeah. The establishment's failing. And, the, and, and this is always going to be a cycle. I mean, I don't want to give the impression we're going to achieve some sort of stasis where everything is perfect. It, that, I think that's kind of what they thought after uh, uh, the Soviet the, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union fell. They had Francis Yama wrote uh, uh, The End of History and the Last Man mm -hmm. as if human nature just kind of stopped and we were all going to spend our time in a, you know, dancing through a meadow, singing Kumbaya right. and holding hands. Uh we're going to make things better. Then things are going to get worse. Then we're going to have to make things better again. That's the fate of human beings. Yeah. There's never going to be a time when it's perfect. And I, <laughs> I don't want, I, but that doesn't mean we don't have to fix the problems that are, uh, you know, the uh, 25 meter target. That's right. Right. And you talk a lot about, uh, uh, in, well, not a lot about hearing guns, but in your, in your, in, in the books, obviously, uh, personally, uh, cause your last, line of all your bios, I love it, is, uh, let's see, Kurt enjoys sarcasm and red meat. His favorite caliber is 45. Because you were in the Army when you actually still got a 1911, not the Beretta. I carried a 1911 uh, for a while, uh, and it was the shakiest-ass thing ever. I mean, you're, you're just rattled. <laughs> but that was how it was so uh, designed, so that you could take those parts, you know, and you have one over here, and you need a part from it, it'll fit in yours. Yeah. It's not, you know, that was part well, of the I, design. I had a different experience. I, um, I, I, I was writing the Kelly Turnbull book. He had to have a distinctive gun. I was like, what's the best? And I consulted all my gun pals. I, I have a little knowledge, but I'm not a no, no super expert. And the unanimous thing was, you know, well, the Wilson combat is the best. Wilson combat. Okay. So I study up on it. And that's the gun my hero uses mm -hmm. throughout several books. And then Bill Wilson calls me and offers me a uh, Wilson combat. Very kind. And uh, it's a it, it's a damn work of art. Nice. It is yeah, so yeah. much better done than I ever deserved. Oh. <laughs> and, and it is, and it ain't shaky. No, it no, is no. 
No, those guns I are mean, not. <laughs> no, you just want to sit there and admire the thing. I have no business with a uh, a, a weapon like that. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> my, uh, you know, my, my tactic was always, uh, when it was time for me to qualify, I would grab the special forces guys mm-hmm. and go, you guys, you know, you're supposed to go train indigenous forces on how to use weapons. I got a battalion of indigenous guys. Come mm-hmm. on, you're going to be our, you're, you guys are going to oversee training. You get training, we get training. Oh, cool. And uh, uh, on the range, and I would, uh, I, I, I sit there and work with them a little bit. And there I you shoot go. expert. Nice. There and, you go. And if I didn't maintain, I would promptly <laughs> decrease my uh, capabilities uh, dramatically. Yeah. No, you talk about it right here in this chapter. Wilson Combat CQB 1911A1 in the glorious 45 caliber. Um, but uh, but here in this chapter right here um, called a powder keg, um, you start off talking about Ukraine, and, yep. uh, and then you have this this line that I've heard you say and use in other columns, and it says. Having guns in the hands of citizens is the ultimate veto over tyranny. That's it is powerful. Well, look, uh, you know, we we maybe have three million people in the military. That's that's total. We maybe have three million law enforcement. That's six million people. That's probably as many people who have hunting licenses. <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you, I you know, in one of my uh, one of my books, uh, Indian Country. Uh, I talk about a uh, insurgency and what you know what the capabilities of normal people are, um, and it is the idea that people are powerless because they're drones or tanks. And I got a lot of grief. I got a lot of grief when I pointed out in a town hall column. I pointed out what's the most vulnerable part of the tank. Well, it's the drivers. You know, it's the guys. You got to get out of it to take a dump sometime. They got to fuel it. They got to feed it. Nobody, no idiot's going to take on a tank uh, uh, dead on. They're going to wait till the guy gets out. And then the dude who knows the ground because he's hunted deer there for his entire life, he's going to find a hide position and he's going to take that 30 odd six and he's going to put the guy getting out of the hatch down. And then that tank is going to be, if not combat ineffective, much less combat effective. Mm. Uh, the simple fact is a bunch of guys with guns has a inordinate effect on a force that has to defend because it has to defend everywhere. And you look at what happened in Boston, you have two untrained idiots with a bunch of pressure cookers with some, uh, dynamite and a couple of handguns and they hurt a few people, uh, but they shut down that city. And you had entire, essentially, a small army looking for them. Uh, what happens with uh, 30 trained people planning and coordinating with, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, with who, who aren't just running around looking for a place to hide, but who've reconned the place, know the infill, uh, expill line, know what they're doing. Uh, that creates a huge problem. So the idea that it is easy to suppress uh, an insurgency of some sort, that is not necessarily true. Now, of course, the, uh, the, the, the low-grade leftist insurg- urban insurgency of the 70s was suppressed by police. That became a law enforcement thing. Um, but, you know, you could, uh, you could turn a, lar- a, a huge swath of America 
into uh, no-go zones for the authorities just by having a small number of the people there saying, nah, they come in, they're going to have a problem. Uh, what do you got, truckers driving down the freeway when people are shooting at them from sites of their own choosing? Okay, now you got to patrol a whole interstate. Yeah. You got to go in convoys. And, and you know how that gets. When you, when you start having to defend, you, and then you have to defend the defenders. Oh, and you have to feed the defenders. But the guys feeding the defenders, they need defended too. So your, 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 your offensive capability, you, you know, shrinks. And I think that's, you know, obviously that's one of the reasons that uh, uh, special operations folks have gotten such, such a workout is because the, uh, the, the, the regular guys are caught up in this web of securing things. Mm. So you basically have small teams who can actually do the offensive stuff, but it's got to be super targeted. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that becomes problematic too, because those guys burn out. First of all, there aren't a lot of guys who can do it. Second of all, they burn out quickly, or relatively quickly, and you can't replace these guys. Yeah. Now, I can, I, I, can re I can put up a battalion in, a, in about a year. Uh, you know, we can train enough guys to fill it up and whatever and get them trained. Special Forces guys have to be nurtured. And that's, it, 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 they've got to serve years before they even go. So it becomes, the idea that a, a, a determined insurgency can just be uh, extinguished at a snap of a finger is simply wrong if it's determined enough. Uh yeah, I think that, uh, and and again, I, I I'm just talking about how things would work. I'm not advocating for. It. I think it's a terrible idea. And I have a a, a long chapter in there about okay, we we talked a lot about citizens having guns. We talked a lot about uh, what a civil war looked like. When does it become morally okay uh, to step out of the political process and use violence? It was okay for. I agree. It was okay to fight the redcoats. I. Mean, I was morally justified uh when what 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 does the situation look like but here my conclusion is first of all we're nowhere near anything like that uh, you would need a situation where you were absolutely disenfranchised where civil rights were under i mean not just under attack but completely denied you had no recourse couldn't go to court uh you, you couldn't stop stuff uh you know essentially they're knocking doors on your orthodox jewish neighbors to haul them away and that is so far off. Uh, it is uh, uh, the, the, the people talking about it. I think are just silly. Yeah. Uh, the the so the the scenario we want is to do what the Constitution says, which is solve things politically, because politics is how we make decisions about governance. So we all need to participate. And politics is a a, a participation sport. Yeah. But I do agree that every American citizen should have the capability to defend himself, his family, his community, and his constitution when called upon. And I, I saw it in LA. I saw people who had to defend their homes. And they should be able to, and they should be able to defend their neighbors. They don't need to be going to looking for trouble. I think, uh, I think people owe it to themselves to be able to do that basic thing. I think they should know some basic uh, uh, medical stuff, how to stop the bleeding, how to do CPR, you know? So if you're driving, I mean, I, I still carry a, uh, 
emergency bag in my vehicle. I'll get tourniquets and stuff in it. Yeah. If I come across a car wreck and there's some kid bleeding out because his, uh, you know, he's got he, he, he's got an artery in his arm cut, I, I like to think I might be able to help him. And yeah. I, I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation for an American citizen that when the shit stuff hits the fan, that you can uh, uh, contribute instead of saying, perhaps we should call an expert. Right. Dude, there are certain things you need to be expert on. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, you had to, for most of human history, know how to do some of those yeah. things. Otherwise you were not yes. going to be around for long. Your family wasn't going to have a next generation. And uh, only very yeah. recently it, have we been able to call 911 or pull over to the side of that freeway. And instead of getting out to help call 911 with the expectation that someone who knows what they're doing will show up well, yeah, or it, outsourcing the military, not having to go and fight it, yourself, not having to procure it, food and put it on your table for yourself and your family, very slim part of human history. And that's where we're it, in. And yes. it's gotten us a little bit soft. I, I think it has gone off. I think there's another moral component, which is we, we, we are detached from our role as citizens mm -hmm. and a Roman, you know, if you are a Roman citizen, Okay, we're going to war against the Carthaginians. Grab your spear, say, kiss your wife and uh, kids goodbye. You're you're going off to fight the uh, fight the Carthaginians because that's what citizens do. Yeah. Uh, okay, and he picks up his spear and his breastplate and his uh, you know funny plumed hat, and off he goes. Yeah. And uh, I, I think when you take citizenship seriously, because you have responsibilities like being able to help your neighbor if he's having a heart attack, right? Uh, I think it, I think that makes people take being citizens more seriously, which maybe may make them take policy more seriously, which maybe may make them, you know, show up at a, uh, uh, a school board meeting because yeah. they want to say in how their kids are trained. And, and of course, the ruling class doesn't like that. Mm -mm. The ruling class, Wants rid of wants us rid of guns for a number of reasons. The practical matter: if they don't have guns, they can't shoot anybody. Uh, but also, they also want to humiliate those of us who believe that's an important part of citizenship. But also, they want to put people in a position where they uh, rely on the elite mm -hmm. for everything, not just follow up. You know, not, you know, not just the buddy aid part, everything. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a, a very, uh, I think it's super obnoxious. It's, yeah, oh, it's more than obnoxious. And you pointed out here, actually, in this, uh, in, in this column that you wrote in, in townhall.com, you write, our legitimate interest is maintaining the capacity to deter and defeat tyrants and criminals. Yes. Your legitimate interest in limiting our ability to do so is non-existent. Obviously, that's talking to those yeah. who would disarm us. Uh, and then you go on like, this is why it's so, this is why you're so, I mean, it's so great because you break it down in a way that's, uh, that's palatable, uh, that's, uh, has a little sarcasm woven in, um, but is, is true. It's truth. And you're right. There are several Republicans who are apparently eager to come to a compromise on guns with Democrats. Those whose ultimate goal is to rule unchallenged over a nation of disarmed, supine Canadian serfs. Some are lawyers, which explains why they're in Congress and not raking in bucks boy, lawyering. If I went to one of my clients and suggested, okay, I propose we resolve this matter by giving the other side a lot of money and getting nothing in return, I would have to find an alternate income stream too. <laughs> the idea of compromise involves getting something you want, but giving away something to get it. So far, so good. That's how negotiating works. But the key point 
is getting something you want. And then you have a few other things that you talk about and say, see, I'm missing the part where we get something in return instead of merely losing less. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that you write in town hall. Those are the, that's how you, you write your, your Twitter. Um, and, uh, and instead of being just an academic line that is just hard line and, you know, kind of, okay, we get it, but this humanizes things like the way you write humanizes it, which I think is, uh, makes you a lot different than a lot of people out there. Yeah. I want to, I, look, I want people to read my stuff. So I don't want it to be a Batan death mark of <laughs> academic jargon. Yeah. And plus, I don't think like that. I, I, I still like, think like an infantry officer. But I also think like a guy who has to talk to 12 people who are naive and uh, 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 naive and uh, in a good way enough to believe that doing jury duty is their duty as citizens. You know, if you want to be inspired, uh, you know, there's a couple things you can do. You go talk to our young troops. That's always inspiring. But go watch a jury selection. Mm. And you'll, especially in a place like LA, you got a lot of immigrants and you got a few people there who are way too important. Mm. You know, uh, the, you know, kind of the yuppie scum kind of guys, a couple of them are not too important to be here. Most people are like, well, yeah, I, I got my jury summons and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't born in America, but I'm a citizen now and I, I, I want to be able to, I, 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 it's an inconvenience, but I, I want to do it because. This is this is what we do. This is part of what I have to do in my country to mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a citizen is come and solve, you know, help, help solve uh, disputes. And, it's, it, it, you know, if I if I hadn't had my heart surgically removed during law school, um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I might uh, I might feel a little twinge there yeah. because, it, it, I mean, it's really it, it is inspiring. Normal Americans, Jack, are good people. They they are good. I remember. Good lord, tell you what. Tell you a uh, military story. Uh, I'm in Kosovo. I'm at Camp Bonsky, which is like you know a military resort essentially. Mm -hmm. But we are still running patrols, and our patrols would go out in Kosovo, which it just has civil war, and they'd be heavily armed. You'd have these very butch guys. Uh, nobody ever gave us any trouble uh, because we were the first occupying foreigners in a thousand years who didn't come there asking for anything. Mm. And at home, we went back to our base at night and didn't go out and, you know, steal girls or burn their crops or anything. So they were just kind of scratching their heads. This. Well, our guys would go out and um, they would go on patrol and then they'd see schools. So soldiers being soldiers, they would stop. And uh, they would look in. Uh, so, I get this call from the general because I was the general's problem solver. Colonel Schlick, I need you to go to the post office. We had a couple of postal clerks. We had a small post office on base. And he goes, Kurt, there's a problem down there. You got to go down there. You got to fix it. Roger, sir. What the hell's going on? I'm thinking, is somebody stealing stuff? I walk in. The place is packed. There's boxes everywhere. The, the soldiers, sir, I can't get in. We got too much stuff. I mean, what the hell's going on? Those troops would go to these schools, they'd see the kids have nothing. They'd come back, write letters back home to their own schools, to their own churches, to their own, uh, uh, you know, Kiwanis and Rotary Clubs, and, and say, these kids don't have anything. Can you help us? And, and they, they would pack these giant boxes and, and mail them to the Camp Bonsfield so we could help these little kids. Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, these are infantry guys. These are killers. Many of them had CIBs. Many of them had been in Iraq or Afghanistan in the fight. These were not sissies. Yet all they wanted to do was help these kids mm -hmm. who they didn't know. They didn't know Albanians from, uh, 
you know, Maori tribesmen, but they wanted to help because they saw somebody was hurting. And even though they were strangers, even though different religions, these were Muslim kids in many cases, a different religion, totally, it was totally alien. Yeah. And yet they wanted to help. That's, that, that is America That's right. at its core. You didn't see it. Didn't happen in the German sector. Didn't happen in the French sector. Interesting. No. But in the American sector, if the Americans saw a problem, immediately they'd want to solve it. And of course, we were reservists too. So you had a variety of skills. I had farmers. Uh, you know, I, I was helping set up businesses as a lawyer, mm. though I wasn't a lawyer in the military. Mm. Uh, you know, any anything, any ability we had, we would leverage. I want, there were a ton of us lawyers there, and we did, we were doing work, and I figured out that the, the, the United States was getting something like $10,000 an hour of free legal work <laughs> just by these lawyers in the guard yeah. who were going out and, and doing work for these people. Right. Uh, and, and we you know, we loved it. It went, You know, it was a lot like go, you know, being the fireman and sticking to put out the fire at the orphanage. We had to go take the cat out of the tree. But when we left, Kosovo was very firmly in the American camp. Uh, there was no violence. Uh, and it was on the way to kind of squaring away the problems, which later Rick Brunel uh, and some other people would negotiate out. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was a, uh, a use of American military power uh, without using kinetic. Yeah. A lot of information, a lot of economic, right. uh, a lot of development. So, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm very proud of the mission, but I, I, I mean, it really illustrated who Americans are. Yeah. No, you see it in, you see it in Iraq, you saw it in Afghanistan, yep. uh, always those, the kids, you know, protecting those, those kids. Um, and you saw people that had a, that, that had a, a connection, yep. them, their families, their schools, doing anything they possibly could. Uh, and that, that, uh, that is inspiring. That is inspiring. Cause you're right. That is America. Oh, and, and we were very, and Americans are very American. They had a lot of wild dogs. So some local official from the UN announced we're going to have a dog cult. Mm. We're going to go out and kill a bunch of dogs. Oh, you should have seen a general. The general said, you will not kill a single dog. <laughs> you are not going to do that. And I have six Apache gunships. You're not going to do that. Because mm. we just couldn't take it. Right. I remember I, 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 we had some outlying bases. And of course, the rule was you can't have dogs. You can't have the local dogs. They might have rabies. Of course, they never have rabies. And I'd <laughs> go there. And there'd be dogs running all over the place. And yeah. I'd be looking at me like, well, Colonel, uh, uh, I'd be like, well, it looks like everything's under control here. <laughs> it's situation normal, yep. Uh, it, if we, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you weren't allowed to bring local dogs back, but uh, we had the you know the canine guys, and you could uh, gin up some paperwork, maybe sign a paperwork, put them in the, uh, in the in the kennels, and, and get them. So there are quite a few dogs back here named Trigger or J Dam uh, or things like that that were <laughs> the uh, the camp dogs, and uh, you're worried about what's going to happen to them when you left. You can take the American out of America. But you can't take the American out of an American. Yeah, this is true. Uh, I, I I pity the fool who abused a dog in front of an American soldier. Because yeah. yeah. right. he was going to have a bad day. No, exactly. Then how do you explain these guys, these uh, senior level admirals and generals that get up there and issue these statements about uh, disarming the populace, essentially sign their names to things, jump on TV. Uh, you pointed out in here, they say that, yeah, the 5.56 five, round is meant to, meant to hurt someone. And you're like, yeah. That's why we want them. Uh, that's yes. the whole. That's the whole point. Um, but uh, th that 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 class that uh, uh, which is typically an officer class. Well, remember, a, a, a general officers 
you'll never hear me say this again, are human beings. So they're subject to uh, all the uh, foibles of human beings. They grew up in a system. If you're mm. a general officer, you're not about entrepreneurship. You're not about democracy. You are about centralization. Everybody gets together on the team, which I lead, and we bring it in for the big win. And that's why guardsmen were so puzzling to them, because we all had our own businesses. If you were an officer in the guard, you were probably successful in your own business or uh, a company or something. So we're always doing things on our own, right. and, and we're very good at delegating because that's what we did in normal life. And they didn't understand that. And they wanted detailed rules and regulations about how you live. And we're like, no, our guys are fine. I mean, I remember we're at Camp Lewis, uh, Fort Lewis doing training, and they were, you know, they were furious because our guy, you know, our guys would rent cars. They'd go, uh, you know, when, when stuff was done, I mean, we trained a lot, but when stuff was done, you know, you go up host, go get, go to a Denny's or whatever, uh, you know, do, do whatever. And they're like, well, you're going to have all sorts of problems. We had one DUI in three months the last night and the guy was an idiot. <laughs> okay. We, we didn't have the problem. They had to do guys had problems. We didn't have problems because we were adults. If you're a general, you try, you, you believe in centralization and where do you keep your guns? Well, they're in the, well, of course you don't carry your guns around you. You lock, I take control of them and I lock them up and I will give you the gun when I think you have a need for it. I will determine what you get, why you get it, when you get it and how you can use it because I'm the general and that's how society should work. But that's not how society should work. That's, I'm not even sure it's always the way a military <laughs> organization should work. Mm -hmm. But they, they are very comfortable. I used to call them socialists. It would drive them crazy. But I'm like, well, look at it. You own the means of production. You make the food. You generate the fuel. You provide everything. You guys are socialists. Oh, they get mad. But oh, I got to work that into a book. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's wild. Well, I want, I want acknowledgement if you do. I, of course, of course. And I uh, thank you for the blurb for my second novel, by the way, also. I want to make sure for uh, for oh, True Believer, perfect. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to to do that as I was uh, starting out. Uh, I also want to ask you about uh, something that's on a lot of people's minds, uh, China. And you write this. This is, once again, no one else can write something like this. Uh, now there is an Asian powerhouse that is about to beat the USA in the drag race for supremacy and take home its pink slip. Like no, no one else but you is writing a sentence like that. Uh, uh, when you think about China vis-a-vis -vis the United States, uh, supremacy, superpower, production, uh, resources, population, um, what are your thoughts on that in the coming, in this next decade seems well, to be I, very I, telling, both domestically I, and internationally. Uh, in, that, in, in that quote, I was talking about Japan. Uh, 30, 30 years were, ago. When we 30 years they were ago? Japan. Yeah. <sighs> But uh, but it applies to China now because a lot of people are very afraid of China and they don't see the weaknesses. I guess in it's, China. In a book, it's in a chapter called the China Crisis, and so it's like the. So I was like, oh, I guess that's probably. Well, uh, but it, 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 the um, in Japan when we thought in the eighties that Japan was going to overtake us yeah. and run over, I I just caught rising sun on a showtime or something like right. it was hilarious because the japanese are these all powerful guys right and right now Japan great book by the way michael crichton's book case. is fantastic have you read the michael crichton book it's great crichton. yeah i like and i can tell that you've read crichton of course uh i i, I hope i hope that influences but on me oh, too yeah. because it's a very clear guy but uh you know if you look at rising sun the japanese are these 
uh, unstoppable guys. And in reality, now it's all elderly dudes and uh, young people with sex robots. <laughs> um, the, the, but the thing is, you know, China's got these huge problems. It, it has huge strengths. China is a great nation. In the, in, it, it has a, a, a remarkable history, a remarkable people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has suffered. Uh, it's very sensitive to humiliations it suffered. And I got to say, some of those humiliations are pretty humiliating. I was treated by the colonists, particularly the British, not cool guys. Uh, and there's and that that remains part of their psyche. Uh, but China's also a communist dictatorship that has pasted over uh, some trappings of crony capitalism to try and raise the living standard. What China is is a deal, you know, because all Chinese. Many of them have been to America. They do see American media some, to some level. They know we're free. But they give that up for prosperity because they've been so poor and backward and humiliated for so much of their history. It seems like a good deal for them. Mm-hmm. The problem is they're communists. They're not going to be prosperous forever because they can't stand, you know, free, you know, free enterprise demands freedom. And what they have now is corrupt. It's a corrupt uh, simulacrum of uh, uh, free enterprise. It really isn't. And it's not going to endure. And if you some of their real estate uh, uh, markets, they are on the verge of collapse in some areas. We, we, we stand to see um, some major economic upheavals. So what happens when the communists stop being able to keep their part of the bargain? Yeah, you don't get freedom, but you're not getting prosperity either. How's that going to work? On the other hand, I think Americans fail to understand the Chinese position on Taiwan. I'm not saying it's the right position. I'm saying you've got to think like your enemy. That's exactly it. And we never do this. And I don't understand why we can't learn the lesson that we should step into the shoes of our enemy and look at things from their perspective. That lets us anticipate some of their actions and then we can maybe not go to war. Yeah, that would be, yeah. Uh, but, but you know, one of, one of the problems, one of the way that a lot of our ruling class and the regime media like to shut down debate by if you bring up an uncomfortable point, suddenly you're advocating for that uncomfortable point. Hey, yes. the Chinese are really dedicated to renewing Taiwan. It doesn't seem reasonable to us, but it's reality. They they will kill and die to take Taiwan back. Oh, you're just excusing the communists. No, you idiots. Yeah. I'm telling you what our enemy thinks. Mm. I'm I'm S twoing for you. There you Wait, go. For that, for, me, that, for S2, for those uh, uh, for those who don't know, the Intel side of the house, um, red selling something, coming in, looking at it from the enemy's perspective, or just looking at it from a perspective of someone not intimately involved in the creation yes. of said plan and maybe pointing out a couple of things that could be done a tad bit better. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's something we obviously we had 20 years to learn from mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and, and um, we never learned. Yeah, we didn't. Well, we took the wrong yeah, lessons from the Soviets. They, if we if we took any lessons at all, we took the wrong ones from their experience. Well, yeah. and, and the problem is, it didn't have to be that way, but our ruling class hates accountability. If you look at the military, there is no accountability. Who is the guy who got fired for not bringing it home faster in Iraq? Yeah, zero people. Okay. What's the name of the guy? In World War II, if you were a division commander and you were in contact, you had about six weeks to show you had what it takes. 
Yep. Or, or George, you were out. Exactly. Or George Marshall would come in and replace you with someone who was you're, a uh, you're out. exactly deputy takeover. Yep. And, and it wasn't always necessarily because you're a terrible guy. You're just not the right guy to be getting it done. You're going to send you home. You're going to run a recruiting. Uh, That's right. This might not be your sport. Um, yeah. Look, everybody's not everybody's not a good general. Yeah. Everybody's not good at every job. Look. If I had a Marine division that I needed to send into con uh, action, I would want Jim Mattis leading it. If I had, uh, it, he also turned out to be arguably one of the worst Secretary of Defenses ever. Mm. They're different skill sets. Uh, one of the problems with our leaders is they don't understand how military skill sets transfer over, and they don't necessarily, they don't always. Uh, sometimes they can. I mean, George Marshall, obviously. You know, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, obviously. Uh, Mark Milley. Mark Milley was a very brave uh, company and field grade officer. I have talked to people who knew him as a battalion commander. And there's Kurt. He was a great battalion commander. We love the guy. He's a great battalion commander. He's the worst chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff we've ever had. He should have been fired years ago. I mean, grossly incompetent. A disaster. The fact that no one has been fired for what happened in Kabul during yep. that cluster talk, uh, just rankles me. I actually had, uh, I, I represented the families of one of the, as a lawyer of one of the guys killed. I was there when the Marine Corps briefed the tactical situation and the results of a tactical investigation uh, to to a family. And uh, my my first question was, uh, you know, Colonel, I looked at the, I, I looked at the, the, the KIAs, there were no officers. Where were the officers? It's a great question. Turns out he had, they actually had marked on a little map where the officers was. And commander uh, 60 meters away and wounded. I was like, okay, they were where they needed to be. Except the whole unit was placed where it didn't need to be. You had months to develop an infrastructure that would keep unvetted, unsearched uh, Afghans in large numbers. Uh, out of proximity to large numbers of Americans. You could have said that. My my battalion could have planned that better. They, no one planned for months, Jack. They had months. They knew they were going out at a high, and they didn't plan. And our guys got killed because of it. It was absolutely foreseeable. Who's been fired? Who's been held responsible? Who's the guy who lost his gig? Mm -hmm. I'm not even saying court-martial. Who's the guy who said, no, you don't get to be a general anymore because you freaking blew it yep. no one and we don't have any no one got fired for Afghanistan closest was uh, uh, McKiern, uh, uh, McKiernan uh, in uh, 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 whatchamacallit uh, Afghanistan he wasn't fired he was asked to leave ironically he was on stage at the war college talking to us the moment Stanley McChrystal was fired interesting which was interesting right um and what was mccrystal fired for right. mccrystal uh, was fired because his staff ran its full mouth and i'm no fan of mccrystal but it ran its full mouth about the president who i was also not a fan of mm. but you don't sit and talk to the rolling stone about how the president sucks if you're you know part of a, a of a headquarters you you don't get to do that yeah so, yeah, I wrote an article for Town Hall, actually, called Fire the Generals at this time last yeah. year. Uh, some people got upset about that. But interestingly enough, those were officers that got upset with me saying fire the generals. Um, but yeah, zero accountability. And you see it from the end yeah. of World War II. You see it from 1947 onward, interestingly enough. Yeah. 
uh, from the creation of the uh, Department of Defense, changing it from the War Department. Uh, we don't have a Secretary of War anymore. We have a Secretary of Defense. Uh, those are different things. Precision in language reflects yes. precision in thought. Defense is different than a Secretary of War and a Department of War uh, or a War Department. Um, and then we see slowly over time, we see Korea, we see through Vietnam, we see leaders not held accountable. But before 1947, I'll tell you what, if you did not measure up, George Marshall would remove you. And all yes. those people whose names we know today, they didn't start in those positions for the most part. Oh. Um, they made it to those positions because other people didn't measure up and George you, you Marshall remember, replaced them. You remember that scene in Patton where he goes to Friedenhall's uh, 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 command bunker 200 miles behind? dug into a mountain. Says, what the hell are you doing here? You're fired. I'm taking <laughs> over. Uh, and he got out there and he, he started leading. Yeah. But it's getting and, worse and, and worse. And this accountability is getting worse and worse and worse, I think. Um, yeah. and it is so obvious. We all got to see it now. Let's say 1955. Not everyone's seeing things play out in real time. 1960, 1965. You're not seeing it play out in real time. Eventually, you're starting to see things in the 6 o'clock news and then eventually 24-7 news cycle. But today, you're seeing things in real time. And everyone, people who don't have any touch point with the military, have never read a book on tactics or strategy or operations or never even seen a military movie movie can look at what's going on in Afghanistan during that withdrawal. And because they have this thing called common sense, they can apply that common sense to the problem set that they're seeing and say, wait, why are we have, why do these people in this position, why are they put in this tactically disadvantageous position when we had all this time, we had 20 years to essentially prepare for this. And then we also had a base a little bit away here with all this standoff difference that we totally controlled. Um, wait a sec, what? And no one held accountable. No one hauled in front of Congress. And you know what? You don't even need to hold them in front of Congress. You don't even need to do a courts martial. You don't need to, they need to be, move on. They need to yeah. be fired. And other Raven, people who are competent need to put in those places. Them. Yes, that doesn't need to be a huge public type of a thing, but they need to be replaced. That's for sure. And then that instills more trust, not just between yeah. the troops and senior Bingo. level leaders, but the citizenry and senior level leaders. Yeah. And then maybe we don't have these parents or grandparents who are saying, uh, maybe my 18 year old shouldn't join the military. Maybe I'm not going to, you know, give them that wink and a nod if they come to me and say they want to serve their country. It's tough. Well, they're, 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 look, I mean, that's, you know, those of us who, who, who serve, I, I look at this thing, Jack, and I'm thinking six months of time, time, is a battalion commander, is the deputy brigade commander, even acting brigade commander, I could get you literally anything you want. You need people, I get them. Money, fuel, bullets, air power, whatever you need, I could get you, except time. Mm. I could never get you more time. Right. And they had six months. Do you know what I could have done with six months? Holy crud. Mm -hmm. Six months. I six mean, months? But you also have 20 years, essentially, thinking like, hey, we might be leaving this place one day. If I've read my history, we're eventually leaving this place. Uh, so yeah, maybe we're, we should make some. Around. Yeah, maybe we should make some plans or put some things in place. Yeah, but yeah. certainly during Alexander the, the Great, could, <sighs> Alexander the Great couldn't put these guys down for yep. long. But we're smarter than him. Crazy. You didn't even have to go back to Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great or the three British incursions. You could go back to the Soviets. But we had our own 20 years to learn from yeah. and we were and we for whatever reason we didn't and that's and then we ended up with what we ended up this time last year abbey gate planes taken off people falling from the skies holding on to these c-17s trying to get out of there it's it's heartbreaking because it was it's, avoidable it's, and and no one's been held accountable no and that accountable. and we're not going to come around until people are nope uh my my theory is the military has to be the first military culture has to be the first to fix 
two reasons. First, military is the most important thing that the uh, government does. The, the, the armed forces of the United States are the most important role for the military. But second, it's also the fastest. You can put a win on the board quickly. You can change the culture quickly. A new commander can change a culture in a unit very quickly, but for good or bad. <laughs> yes. uh, and I've taken over a lot of units. I used to be a guy, the general would say, like I said, solve problems. That unit's a problem, Kurt. Go fix it. And you go in and you make uh, very clear what the standards are and what your expectations are, and you expect it to get done. And, you know, you, clearly you, you, you earn trust and earn respect along the way uh, as part of it. But, you know, if you're the president, you know, day one, you get the the guys replacing the, chair, chair, uh, the, the chairman who you fired. They come in day one. Guys, we're done with CRT. That's over. You're going to purge it out of everything. No more blocks of instruction. No more pride months. Uh, no more uh, freaking pronouns and signature blocks. No more reading lists with racist garbage by Ibram Kendi. It's all gone. It's all done. I want everyone in a uh, slot that says diversity, equity, or inclusion. Uh, if they're a civilian, I want them retired uh, and laid off or laid off. If they're military, I want uh, to a, uh, a vacancy in a, uh, a force projection unit. I want, I want it done. You're going to come in and brief me Friday at 0900 that you have done it. There are, there are two possible, there are three possible answers. One is, no, I haven't. You're fired. The next is, yes, I have, and it's a lie. I will prosecute you. The only acceptable one is, yes, I have, I have met your intent. Before you walk out of here, generals, make sure you're very clear on my intent because I'm holding it to you. See you on Friday. And, you know, unreasonable but doable uh, uh, missions that express your intent. You want them scrambling. You want them understanding that you are not going to accept anything but a unreserved yes, an unequivocal affirmative. I have complied. Uh, and then you have people, you know, I, I, I would have a team of guys uh, from the military reading social media, looking for problems, like a chaplain at Elmendorf Air Force Base, not allowed to say Jesus because the, uh, you know, the base commander doesn't think that's a, uh, uh, consistent with the First Amendment. Great. Whole chain of command in here. Day after tomorrow, 0900, to brief me on exactly how you're going to fix this fuck up and how you're going to, in the future, uh, follow my intents about religious freedom among our troops. See in 48 hours. Bye. Yeah. Do you think that? And then you do it. And you only do it two or three times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably more because than that. Because that's done. But do you, do, you, um, do you think that's not that, not that it's not possible, quote unquote, but in uh, today's culture, that is, uh, I call it moral vanity that seems to be invading all aspects yeah. of uh, popular culture for sure. But many of our institutions from uh, Wall Street to, to tech to sports, um, obviously education, um, is it doable in the sense that is this moral vanity so pervasive that it's uh, it won't happen and someone would just, even given those orders, just wait out the guy in charge because he's probably going to get fired before you are, or that sort of a thing. Well, it, it, you have to anticipate that, and you have to create situations where they either have to conform or be exposed. Because remember, this is, that's a giant information operation. Mm. It's not necessary to clear out CRT. It's to say there's a new sheriff in town, and I'm not taking any shit from anybody. Mm -hmm. And if you want anything like a career, you will conform. 
And if you don't, you know, this is a war fighting organization. You can be part of a war fighting organization or you can find something else to do. And I, I look, I know it's no secret to you, but I didn't join the military for the money. I don't think you did either. <laughs> I wanted to, I, look, I wanted to serve my country. I was important. Uh, but I wanted to find out, you know, could I, I want to be part of something. I want to find out if I could be part of something, mm -hmm. if I could do things that other people couldn't. And I was proud to do it. Uh, and I liked going on operations uh, because I got to be part of history. And I think most people join the military for that. I, I met very few people there. I met a few, but very few careerists in a sense that all I want to do is just, you know, make a living and go home at five because mm. you're in the wrong occupation. Right. There's better ways to make money. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and if you empower those people and that in, in, intent, uh, I think uh, I, I think you will put a win on the board very quick as the military starts changing back. And, and, and of course, you know, requires a president who's willing to devote the time, who is not uh, a bedazzled by a ribbon rack. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Millie's rack's pretty impressive. He's got a lot of medals and things. He's also terrible at his <laughs> current job. Um, you need to see through that. And, uh, you know, a, a guy like Ron DeSantis, for instance, uh, he was a JAG. I think he worked yeah. with uh, uh, Naval Special Warfare. Uh, you look at him, and I see a guy who's been at a lot of uh, uh, command and staff meetings because he's he he talks like a commander. Mm -hmm. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Not a not a course action brief. Not a decision brief. This part's the orders brief. This is what we're doing. Let's go. Yeah. And he and I I I think that skill set could be very handy if he's the one that the GOP chooses. Uh, Donald Trump, I, I, I hope he's less uh, deferential to uh, military leaders than he was before, because a lot of them really screwed it, and it was kind of disgraceful. Oh, man. And now that we have a year to look at uh, uh, the geopolitical landscape post-withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, what impact do you think that had on uh, what's going on in Iran right now vis-a-vis -vis nuclear deals, Israel, and then uh, China, Taiwan, and Russia, Ukraine? Um, I don't think uh, we'd be having a lot of these. Pro well, maybe Biden would have screwed up somewhere else. But what it told our uh, uh, enemies is that America's leadership is completely feckless. You know, he's he's sitting there, he's running around. When he's not checking his watch as, as the bodies are being unloaded off the aircraft, you know, he's walking around telling you how this was a great operation. And it's like, you know, we got eyes, right? You know, we're, we're, we're seeing this. You get that. No, 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 it's a great operation. It's uh, just, uh, uh, just a miracle. We're, what a success. And our enemies are just going, you know, he's a stupid man. He's now senile. He's surrounded by clowns. Uh, his military, senior military leadership is uh, uh, distinctly unimpressive. This is the time. I don't understand I, look, if I were G, I'd be looking really hard at grabbing Taiwan mm. because I think this is his window. Uh, will he do it? I don't know. Uh, Putin acted. Putin said, "Let's let's roll the dice." And I'm, you know, frankly, I don't trust the media enough uh, to to try and figure out the situation. I know he hasn't won the war yet. Uh, I, I don't know how well the Ukrainians are actually doing. I train the Ukrainians. 
very tough dudes. Uh, always drunk, um, but very <laughs> tough dudes. And I, I, I anticipated they would put up a, a pretty hard fight and you would see a lot of partisan activity, which apparently is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, Putin made his move because he thought Biden was weak. Iranian. I mean, Biden's about to hand them another, uh, another quote, nuclear deal. I, I think I, if, if they got together and were attempting to figure out how to screw our country up worse, I don't I know. know how they would do anything different. I know I had to do that for the uh, my fourth book, The Devil's Hand. I had to put myself in the enemy's shoes, and that's how I started it out in uh, in the fall of 2019. So right before pre-COVID, as I'm outlining this thing, coming up with my theme, putting myself in the enemy's shoes, thinking if I were uh, Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, super-empowered individual, a terrorist organization, what would I have learned over the last 20 years watching the United States at war? So that was kind of formed the basis of that novel. But then we move into 2020. As I'm typing away... And COVID hits, and I'm in the enemy's shoes. And I thought, well, okay, what are they learning from our response to COVID? And that makes it in. And then we hit a summer of civil unrest. Well, the enemy's not just looking at that passively and going on to their next thing. Uh, No, they're taking lessons from that and applying that to future battle plans, figuring out how to exploit it. So that made it into the novel. And then we hit a very obviously contentious political season, an election cycle. Once again, the enemy is looking at that. But my, my takeaway from all of that was that, geez, if I was the enemy... I wouldn't do much right now. I might just sit back and watch, but it's because we're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside. I might just wait it out, nudge a little here, nudge a little there, test some waters here or there. Uh, of course, that doesn't make for a great novel, so I had to figure out a way to have them take an action, uh, and I got to, had to get creative about that, which I did. But uh, but the takeaway was depressing, was that uh, we're doing a pretty good job of uh, destroying ourselves when we got to this level of affluence and being so comfortable that now we just attack one another and weaken our position domestically and on the world stage, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, unless, unless there's a turnaround with a new president in 2024, uh, the graph is heading south. We're getting weaker and may, maybe it does make sense to sit and just let us grind ourselves down. You know, the, the, the Chinese have passed this in ships. Yeah. They have more surface vessels than we do. Better ones too. Oh, are they better? Uh, what, 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 you know, do, do we have a plan to, to to become the Pacific Navy we used to be? For a long time, we glided on uh, our capabilities. Hmm. Uh, you know, particularly uh, naval, for instance. Yeah. Uh, we were the only guys in town, maybe the Brits, who had who had actually figured out how to fight a oceanic transoceanic war Mm -hmm. and that experience stayed with us for 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s and now we're running ships into boats other people's boats i mean it's just like i i i I mean you know i i love to make fun of the navy but the army's not not doing a great job either are are, is seamanship important to them or is is quote unquote, diversity training. I don't know, but I know every minute that you're not training on something important is a wasted minute and you can't get that back. Nope. And the Chinese have to be looking at it. And, you know, you look at the Carthaginians and the Romans, Romans had no, uh, no actual Navy uh, beforehand. Mm. They had a, uh, before they went to war with Carthage, they had a, uh, they built it 
And the Carthaginians had this great naval tradition, and uh, they uh, uh, they lost. They lost against upstarts. Mm. Yep. Got to adapt. Uh, that's obviously very important. Not stay stagnant, but look at a battlefield and capitalize on momentum and recognize gaps in the enemy's defenses. Do all those basics and do those basics exceptionally well. But uh, but you're right. We had that naval power. We had that military power. Um, we had accountability. Uh, we added uh, the threat of uh, strategic defense initiative to that in the early 80s and stealth technology, uh, regardless of how uh, uh, effective it may or may not have been just having that threat out there or that possibility out there. Uh, and then we work up to where you start this book right here in 19, in 1991. Um, and, uh, you talk about that being our pinnacle, but all those things led us to that point. And then we get to that point that you start in the book right here and, uh, the fall and rise of America. So I like that because you end it on a positive, even here. I don't know if that's intentional um, or if it's just something optimistic. that you do. You're all, you're optimistic. So I did want to talk to you about that before I let you go. Uh, that optimism that you end the book with. And there's optimism in all these things that we're talking about. The way that you talk about them in town hall and in your books and on, in your tweets, there is that glimmer of optimism in there. But uh, what gives you hope for the future and, uh, and how optimistic are you for a, an American? You give three options in here. There's three options. Uh, one of them is we win, they win, but there's another one in there. It's your option A. We go back to something where all citizens uh, have their rights respected and they all have the ability to participate in their governance. That yeah. is America as it's supposed to be. And that's the one I want. Yeah. I can live with that. Option two, we run everything. We conservative types. I could live with that. I prefer option one. I can live with option two. Option three, uh, the left takes over. No, thanks. Not acceptable. Not mm. happening. Uh, I'm optimistic because I look at what happened in Virginia where people rose up against uh, a leftist. I look at school boards. I look at uh, I look at the uh, uh, Hispanic Americans moving over to uh, the Republican Party because these are great faith, family, and flag people. Hey, I married into a Cuban family. And uh, I, I, I am so honored uh, that this group of folks is uh, uh, coming over to our side. Uh, uh, and here's the biggest thing, Jack. I can't see losing to these freaking losers. I can't see being <laughs> defeated by this uh, bunch of uh, clowns, weirdos, freaks, and mutations. I, I, I No, it ain't going to happen. I'm not going to lose to... I don't like losing to anybody. But I'm not going to lose to these blue-haired, pierced weirdos with their <laughs> Trader Joe's Chardonnay and their bizarre gender dysphoria nonsense. If I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be beaten by somebody who knows what bathroom to use. These guys can't win. I just can't live with that. <laughs> And that's what you get when you follow you on Twitter or uh, watch you on uh, these new segments or read the books. Um, you know, I, I love that there's the the humor element. It gives you a lot of uh, of leeway with people, I think. And uh, and you and and you can talk at the tactical level, the operational level, and the strategic level, both about the military side of the house, the political side of the house, the geopolitical side of the house internationally. You can cover all of this, and there are very few people out there that can do that without faking it. Um, a lot of people out there faking it. <laughs> 
but you're I not faking it. I always felt like I was faking it. I'm just a suburban dipper <laughs> from California. I think they call that the imposter syndrome, but I've never bought into the imposter syndrome. Uh, and, I, and, <laughs> and, I, and you can tell because you've done it. You know, that that's awesome. You've been out there. Uh, you know, you've worked on the front lines in different conflicts um, and uh, and you're logical oh, God, about I things. Oh, so far in the rear, the rents were in front of me. <laughs> But you got a good perspective. Hey, I'm How no about Pete that? Buttigieg. I'm no hero. <laughs> but it gives you a good perspective to be able to talk at all those different yeah. uh, at all those I, different I levels. I had a lot of great opportunities, uh, and uh, you know, I look I especially look at the military, and people are like, "Thank you for your service." I'm like, "You don't get it." First of all, as a colonel, don't thank me. But but second of all, I got so much more out of it than I put in. Mm. I'm so grateful that my country let me do this. Mm. To, to leading American uh, troops was the greatest honor I'll ever have. Uh, uh, and uh, I got to see history. I got to do things other people only hear about and some things that they'll never hear about. And I'm just uh, I, I'm just so profoundly grateful to my country. And um, I, I like to think I've only started serving it. Now I'm going to serve it in a different way. Yep. And, uh, possibly a much more important way, but all those things that you've done before that builds that foundation and, uh, that allows you to do the things that you're, you're doing now, which, uh, you know, might be the, the most important, uh, uh, mission of your life. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for putting it out there. Uh, it's tough to, to be out there and just be a target all the time. You seem to handle it very well. Uh, you know, that's why I'm never going into politics. I don't do that sort of thing. Well, I do the fighting. Well, I don't like just walking out and saying, shoot me, but not just shoot me 20, <laughs> not just shoot me when I'm out, like, you know, physically somewhere. The rules. Um, no cover, no exactly. You're out there and everyone, not just in this country, but on earth can sling an arrow at you. Yep. And you're out here with no shields at all. And I'm talking about social media, obviously, uh, and can just sling all day long. You don't even get a respite by going home at the end of the day. It follows you everywhere. Just like right. with our kids at school that used to be able to go home at the end of the day and be like, oh, I don't have to deal with that person again. They get that bullying or they get that those inputs all through the rest of the evening into the night. Some Sometimes if you're a parent and you don't take their kid's phone away or whatever yeah. else and you're monitoring it, there's no break for them. Just like with today's politicians. That's why I begrudgingly respect everybody that steps into that, that arena. Uh, I'm glad they do it uh, because it was, sounds like an awful thing to do, to put yourself through, put your family through. I'm good at the fighting and the scrapping part of it, but not the real, not the, not just set, sitting out there and getting shot by arrows 24 uh, seven. I, I just don't have that kind of, kind of skin. I'd rather go, you know, kick your door in the middle of the night and do that sort of thing. That's, that's well, I, I know where my skill sets team. lie. It's important to know your capabilities and your limitations. And I feel like I know both of those Man's very got well. to know his limitations. A wise man once said, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so point being, thank you for being out there. Uh, and you know, you take the arrows, even as an author today, you know, you just take it as reviews. Anybody can review. You don't have to, yeah, they don't even have to read the really? book. You can just tell how much they, they hate you. <laughs> well, yeah. A lot of people seem to like it. So uh, that's good. My, hey, my publisher's happy. Means nice. I'm happy. My agent's happy. Means I'm happy. There Let's see go. if they'll buy uh, my, uh, my uh, first uh, non-specifically conservative action novels. Nice, that, nice. And that's not sale. the next one you're working on. That's that. This next one comes out in the fall, right? That's the one after that? The, the one in the fall is going to be Kelly Turnbull 7, Inferno. Uh, and I... I Gosh, I just have so much fun writing these things, Chad. Nice. It is a blast oh, you can tell. to write. Yeah, you can tell you have a good time writing writing these things. There's, uh, yeah, old uh, Golden Gate Bridge right there. 
uh, on the cover, yeah. cover of that one. Uh, we got the Lincoln Memorial right there on Crisis. Yeah. So the, the covers are very uh, creative as, as well and tell a story uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. There you a go. Good, good friend, a good conservative pal does the cover. The Inferno covers uh, are going to be amazing. I just have so much. And man, I have sold boatloads of this. I'm into the six figures on these things. It's, it, 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 it's really amazing. Uh, the, the, that's a good part of technology. You know, I didn't have to ask a publishing house to do it. And I didn't have to wait, you know, the, we'll be back it's probably eight or nine months in the pipeline. Mm. I can do these, get them out in like a, a few months. Yeah. And it's, it, it's just, it's a great opportunity. And the p- people have been really cool about it. And I think they have a lot of fun. They bug me to have a, have new ones coming. Uh, I can't think of a higher compliment. So oh. I'm very excited. Amazing. I mean, you seem like you're having fun with it as well, which, yeah. which, which also lends itself to, uh, to bringing people along for that ride, sharing that journey. I mean, who wants to follow someone or spend time with someone who's miserable and having a horrible time? Uh, you look like you're having a great time with all of this. You're doing something important. Uh, and thank you for writing. We'll be back. And, uh, man, thank you for taking the time to do this today and writing the town hall columns and, and, uh, and giving me that blurb and being such a, a strong voice. Any, 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 anything you need, we all got to help each other. And it's, uh, uh, I mean, it is, uh, you were very, I, I think we're blessed in a lot of ways. There are a lot of people who aren't here, uh, and we are, and then we get the opportunity to follow this kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a dream cause that sounds kind of sissy, no, but, uh, this, uh, new, uh, new career path. I mean, you know, yeah, when I'm sitting, I remember huddling in the rain in the mud, and it's just thinking, you know, that someday I'll be, um, uh, I'll be, uh, uh, you know, I'll be publishing books, getting on uh, bestseller lists, you know, and that's kind of cool. And that's what America's about. It's about opportunity. I want everyone to have the same chance. That's what I'm fighting for. That's it. That's it. And those options and opportunities. Very few people in the world have those. And uh, that's why travel is so important. Studying history is important. Reading these books are important. Educating yourself is important. Getting off Twitter, uh, except that they follow you, is important. Uh, and putting that time into that into the study of issues and history so you can make good choices for the next generation. So uh, that's our responsibility. So, man, thank you for, for all you do. And hopefully we can link up in uh, in person one of these days soon as I, I, uh, so. as I pass through LA. LA. That's right. That's right. When I pass through LA, uh, we need to link up. Well, you know, I never go out of cities. Of course, I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad. Yeah. No more. <laughs> I, want, I want a place where a guy's bringing me drinks. My tactical vehicle is a BMW. Uh, <laughs> I mean... I've done the woods. There you go. There you go. That's right. Next chapter in life. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Awesome. Well, hopefully I'll see you People soon. People are like, Kurt, come hunting with me. And I'm like, that sounds very cold. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, yeah, it's a, it's the next chapter. Next chapter in life. You don't need to do some of those, but be prepared. Like with that bag you have in oh, your BMW. Oh, I'm re- oh, I, I know you are. I know you're prepared. <laughs> Got that Wilson combat and that, uh, and that go bag right in the car. Exactly. Nice. Hey, maybe now I'll be able to get a concealed weapon for California. Oh, is that right? Is that of course, something... I'm not, I wasn't qualified until the Supreme Court said so. Oh, well, I'm sure there will be a few different administrators. Remember in the military, like how they uh, made it very difficult to drive a motorcycle on base? Uh, and you could. It wasn't against the law or regulations, but you had to 
take time off and take a three-day motorcycle course that you needed to review every couple of years or something like that. You had to get permission from your master chief NCO to take time off of what you're actually doing to go do that. Uh, then when you came on base, your motorcycle had to have obviously the stickers and all that sort of thing, but you also had to have boots that covered your ankles, gloves, long sleeves, uh, a jacket. Eventually they added a road guard vest to it, obviously a helmet, but any one of those things and you're going home, you don't have the bright road guard. So they made it administratively. They won. Like I'm a motorcycle guy. I used to ride my Harley to, to work with a buddy of mine who unfortunately is no longer with us. Amazing guy. But we'd ride into work to SEAL Team 2 together and uh, on the Harleys. Eventually, they just made it so difficult. It was like, you guys win. You, administratively, you have you have crushed us. Uh, same thing in California, I am sure, with uh, depending on what county you live in, obviously. But uh, making it so hard to either get ammo uh, or to, yeah, you can have a concealed carry permit, but guess what yeah. you need to do? in order to do that. So we'll see. We'll I, see. I, I think it's ironic that the guy who literally decided what arming uh, uh, order thousands of guys were at with automatic weapons has to apply to some GS3, you know, who's been a clerk for four years to make that determination. I, I think that, that sums up everything that's wrong with our uh, current state of government. There it is. And I agree with you. Oh man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time today. This thanks was so great much. to be able to spend a little, uh, a uh, few moments with you here and uh, get to catch up and talk. And, uh, once again, hopefully, we'll, hopefully we'll do it, uh, in one of your cities, uh, one day soon, a place, a place that brings, uh, brings us drinks. Thanks a lot, man. Awesome. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for everything. Thank you to Navy federal presenting sponsor of the danger close podcast. I've been a member since 1996, since my first couple months in the military. Thank you guys for being on the journey with me. Navy Federal Credit Union is helping their members save when they purchase new homes. They have loan options and resources to make sure you get a great deal. Now Navy Federal will contribute $1,000 as a lender credit towards closing costs on your new home. Members also save on their monthly payments since there is no requirement for private mortgage insurance. Plus, Navy Federal offers low rates and fees so you can save even more. Navy Federal mortgage experts can help you choose the best option for you, making the home loan process a smooth experience. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Qualifying members with purchase mortgage applications after 916-22 may receive up to $1,000 towards actual closing costs applied at closing with no cash back and subject to loan program maximum contribution limits. Terms subject to change. Ask your loan officer for details. Navy Federal. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Schnees. And go to schnees.com, check out all they have going on. They have a ton of great things on their website. Uh, check them out on Instagram. 
But today I want to talk about boots because I love everything that they have going on up there, but I probably have 10 different pairs of their boots. But I started with these right here, the granites. And I love these boots. I got my first elk in these, uh, muzzleloader hunt, New Mexico, about a decade ago. These are the exact same boots right here. So they have some miles on them. They have been to uh, Alaska after bear, wolf, uh, moose, and I just love these boots. So if I go into the backcountry and I have some weight on my back and I'm planning on coming out even a little heavier, then these are the boots that I take. I was wearing these in Kamchatka, Russia on a bear hunt where I went to do some research for Savage Sun. And for those of you who know Savage Sun, that's my third novel in the James Reese series. And uh, you know a lot of it takes place there. And then there's a little story that I fictionalized and dropped into Alaska in that, uh, in that story near kind of closer to the beginning, but these are the boots that I wore. Absolutely love these boots right here and love all the people at Schnee's and just can't say enough good things about them, but they are handcrafted in their Italian boot factory. That's right. You'll find no mass production machinery. there. just a team of world-class boot makers doing their thing. Schnee's only sells boots directly to you, the consumer. This means there is no middleman markup like other boot companies out there. That means that they can put higher emphasis on the materials that go into their boots and you get more boot for the money, higher quality materials and more boot for the money. From the leathers to the tread, every Schnee's boot is made from the absolute finest materials available, backed by Schnee's industry-leading customer service and support. If you have a question or need a solid boot recommendation for your hunt, give them a call. You'll actually get a person on the line who wears the boots and is ready to help. There are a lot of boots out there uh, in their lineup, so definitely give them a call. Let them know what you're going to be doing, and they can make a recommendation for you. When you shop at, shop at schnees.com, that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21. When you do, you'll get 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. Again, that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, promo code JACK21. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's today. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Clothes Podcast. All right, look at this right here. Very cool. So Patrick Scullin Illustrator sent this. Uh, ScullinIllustration.com. Very cool. Look at that. I think that is the first image that we released from the set of the terminal list. So uh, thank you so much for sending this along. I'm definitely going to frame this. Super cool. So Patrick Scullin, thank you. And he also sent along this book here, Clash of the Tweens, right there. So very talented illustrator. Uh, thank you. And Jesse D'Angelo, man, look at this one. It's the apocalypse. What were you expecting? Zombies, doomsday dogs, a novella. Once again, very talented guy right here. So Jesse D'Angelo, thank you for sending this along as well. JesseD'Angelo.net. And what shirt am I wearing right now? Fieldcraft Survival, Mike Glover. Um, he has this company called Wolf 21 right here, and it's wolf21.com. He just sent me these different supplements right here, some sleep aids, and uh, yeah, man, awesome. So go check them out for sure. Uh, Mike, obviously, Fieldcraft Survival, awesome. Love uh, what he's doing with that company. He's just an amazing human being. 
but uh, check him out. Wolf, thewolf21.com. All right. And Eberly Stock, man, Eberly Stock, you probably noticed Chris Pratt wearing a couple different packs in the show. That blue one that he wears in episode five in the scene that is a tribute to Heat. And then at the beginning of episode four with the Gunslinger 2 going into the mountains to take that sniper shot. So uh, Everly Stock, awesome. Glenn Everly, uh, he was on the podcast not too long ago. You can go check that out. That amazing guy, Olympian, uh, veteran, and has Everly Stock company. So right here, look at this thing. Man, this is well thought out. It's called the Recon Modular Bino Pack Harness right here. So that thing is cool. Look at that. It's got the hand warmer in here, and I'll be checking this out hopefully this fall. Got to finish book six first, though, before I head out. Very cool. Thank you, guys. And Jocko, man, look at this thing. Whew. Jocko Fuel. What could be in here? Well, I know because I've already opened it. But there it is. Look at that. Man, look at that presentation right there. Of course, little note, good. <laughs> Discipline equals freedom right there. So this is the, the new flavors of Jocko Go right here. Mango Mayhem. Look at this. Nice, clean energy right there. Tea lemonade. Oh, camel one. I'm instantly attracted to the camel one right there. But all have new, improved flavors. So Jocko Fuel, go check that out. Jocko, thank you, my friend, for everything. And send me. So this is a documentary. It is available on Amazon right now. You can click to it in my bio on Instagram, but just go. You can also go to sendmemovie.com and you'll have the links there as well. But you can find it on Amazon about the fall of Kabul. And uh, if there are any profits made from this thing, 100% of those go back to helping those left behind downrange. So uh, thank you to Save Our Allies, Tim Kennedy, and everybody involved in making this film. It's very emotional, very powerful, and I highly recommend that all Americans watch it. This is something that we should never forget. And until the next time, take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Kurt Schleichter, be sure and follow him on Twitter, and that is K-U-R-T-S-C-H-L-I-C-H-T-E-R. Follow him on Twitter. Definitely check out his columns on townhall.com and pick up not just his latest book, but his other books as well. You can follow me on Instagram and the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and also click on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original. 
Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot. Like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts. 